اعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم سوره انزلناها وفرضناها وانزلنا فيها ايات بينات لعلكم تذكرون صدق الله العظيم this is surah nur surah number 24 this is the beginning of the revelation of the surah was in the 6th year after hijra and there are many important things that are going to come in the surah First thing is going to come is the issue of hudud and the punishment for zina and discussion of zina. Another thing is going to come when there's an accusation of zina between husband and wife, Layan. Another thing that is going to come is the famous incident when Ummul Mu'mineen Sayyidatina Aisha Anha was slandered. Another incident is going to come, obviously the famous Ayatun Nur due to which the surah is called Surah Nur. And then there's going to be other things that are going to come, but these are the major... Yes, and obviously the ayah on hijab, and who and who is not a mahram of a woman, and what amount of herself is her beauty, and how much of that beauty she is or is not allowed to reveal. So these are some of the major topics that come in the surah. So it's a very important surah. Hence Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to this surah as suratun, that indeed this is a surah. This is a very, yani, it means this is an, indeed a very important surah of Qur'an al-Kareem. Anzalnaha, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that we have revealed. Wafaradnaha, and it means that we have prescribed or ordained upon you. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is starting out on a strong note, if you could feel that Arabic, Wafaradnaha means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that there are going to be injunctions and commands in the surah and this surah has been revealed to impose and enjoin and prescribe and ordain those commands upon you. And in that, وَأَنزَلْنَا فِيهَا آيَاتٍ بِيَّنَاتٍ And we have revealed clear verses, clear verses. Why? لَلَّكُمْ تَذَكَّرُونَ So that you may remember and take heed. So the very first ayah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is making it crystal clear. This is going to be a surah, this is wahi from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there's going to be hukam, there's going to be laws, rules and commands, they will be mentioned clearly, there will be no discrepancy, no ambiguity, and you have to take heed and follow those commandments. Now what did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begin? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Az-Zaniyatu That the female fornicatress or the woman who engages in unlawful relations and that man who engages in unlawful relations the woman believer who does zina the male believer who does zina that you should lash or if you will say whip that you should lash or whip each of the two one hundred times Rafatun fi dinullah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says you should not let compassion for the two of them overcome you. Allah Akbar. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Quran you should not let compassion for the two of them overcome you fi dinullahi in regards to the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala means when it concerns obedience and submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala means when it concerns obedience and submission to this command to lash and whip each and every one of them 100, each of the two of them 100 times each 
Do not let your compassion for them overwhelm you or overtake you. In, in other words, don't let it make you leave the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, leave the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If indeed you truly believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with yawm al-akhiri and in the last day, in the day of judgment. وَلْيَشْهَدْ أَذَابُهُمَا طَائِفَةٌ مِّنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ Second commandment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that and let, yani it should be the case that a group of believers, a ta'ifa, an assembly and a group of the believers should witness the punishment of the two of them. And this is a very intense ayah in Qur'an al-Karim. And I'm deliberately trying to present it to you intensely because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has presented it intensely. Up to now, those of you who have been here this year and those of you who were last year would see that it is very rare that right up front Allah ta'ala starts giving hukum. Normally Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala starts talking about himself or the creation that he's created ma'afil samawatu wa ma'afil ard. Allah ta'ala talks about many things. And then as you get a bit further into the surah, then you have a clear, explicit ruling. But here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala starts at the outset. Even the first ayah is just a muqaddama, is just a preface to this. It's just to give the hukum the full force. So this is a very strong passage of Qur'an al-Karim. Alright. First thing that we should know is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created us. He knows us. He knows humanity. He is ahkum al-hakimin. He is the most wise being. And he knows how to bring that humanity at an individual, family, societal level to perfection on earth if they choose to submit to that teaching. He can give Kamil Hidayah. And Quran al-Kareem is obviously the most Kamil, most perfect Hidayah guidance ever given to humanity in the history of the world. So, and Quran al-Kareem is the last and final book and revelation Therefore, that perfect guidance will remain absolutely perfect until the Day of Judgment. It will never wane or waver in its perfection, no matter the time, the age, the place, the zaman, the makan, no matter what case you put in front of it. If there was anything like that, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had multiple cases, some of that was revealed to the ultimate form of hadith. And if there was anything that was going to be case-based, time-based, then Allah Ta'ala left that out of Qur'an and Sunnah, left that up to the ijtihad of the fuqaha, left that up to the discretion of the qazi, left that up to the decision of the amir. So not like all three aspects are there in Islamic law. So we must realize that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions something clearly in Qur'an, it's the indication of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that this is not time-based, this is not place-based, this is not case-based, this is absolute universal sharia, this is absolute law for which there can be no change or amendment whatsoever, because that's why it's in Qur'an. Alright. Second is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when He created humanity, it also means that He knows what is going to be a deterrent for insan. What is that punishment that is going to deter the person from committing the crime? Now in secular law, in criminal law, this is considered the art or the skill or the science of criminal law to design a criminal justice system and penalties and a process of conviction and trial and conviction such that it serves as a sufficient deterrent to crime. That's a human effort. 
Allah subhanahu wa in Quran al-Karim is Khalaqul Insan. He knows how to create a system which will be the true deterrent to crime. And in Allah subhanahu wa infinite wisdom, He has decreed that the deterrent for this crime of zina should be the punishment of 100 lashes or whips. Similarly, Allah subhanahu wa knows our temperament again. Allah subhanahu wa knows and He says up front that don't let your compassion for the two of them make you not do it. Because yes, this is an intense punishment. It's physical punishment on someone. And then, and you find today, everyone in the world will have all types of excuses. The boy will present a whole long story. The girl will, or the man or the boy will present a whole story. The girl or the woman will present a whole story. We are humans. We have emotions. We may be moved by their story to feel a feeling of compassion. We may want to forgive them. We may want to waive the penalty. We may want to give them a second chance. We may want to give another penalty. Just verbal reprimand, community service, prison time, Fine, we may come up with so many things. Allah subhanahu answered that up from. He said, Allah says, I know you. And I know you have that soft nature. I created you like that. And I know it would be difficult for you to inflict this punishment. But Allah subhanahu says clearly another command. As important as is the command to do the whipping and lashing is the commandment that don't let yourself be overwhelmed by the compassion. Notice Allah doesn't say, he doesn't negate the compassion. You will feel it. There's going to be another use for that compassion. I'll explain that a bit later. But the compassion is not going to be used to change the hukum of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You can't do that. If you really believe in Allah. In kuntum tu'minuna billah. Why? Because Allah said in Surah Al-Baqarah, Alladheena yu'minuna bil-ghayb. The real believers are ones who believe in the unseen. Unseen means sometimes things that are unascertained, unproven, ununderstood. They may not understand why we should lash the person. Their compassion may make them want not to lash the person. But if they have iman in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Quran, they will do so. Even if they don't understand it, they can't ascertain it. And if you believe in the last day that you yourself will be in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and be asked that if a certain process we're going to outline, if the crime was identified through a process and the punishment is therefore warranted and justified, and you didn't do it out of compassion, whether that compassion is based on human emotion, based on Western secularism, based on international human rights law, based on modernism, reformism, whatever you want to call it, you will also be on that day of judgment and Allah will ask you why you did the sin of not carrying out the punishment that Allah Ta'ala decreed. If you believe in Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala and you believe in the last day, and that Allah Ta'ala gives, because the next part was even more intense, and that part is also linked to the compassion. That a person's compassion wasn't going to enable them to do this. So as far as this next tukum, Allah Ta'ala nipped it in the bud in advance. Because the next tukum is that a group of the believers should witness this act. And people would find that difficult to do, right? So that's another way the compassion may have come in. So even before giving that strong hukum, Allah Ta'ala made it clear. And yes, that is the hukum. Now the purpose of the, and I'll explain that a bit later as well, the purpose of the group of people witnessing is not to jeer or to snide or to throw tomatoes or something like that. It's for them to stand there silently, solemnly and take an ibra, to take an ibra, to take, a, to take heed and warning from what they witness. Number two, for them to stand there silently and cry 
and make du'a maghfirat for the people who are being last, to stand there and cry and think of their own possible similar sins and make du'a maghfirat for their own selves. That's the way they're supposed to stand. So it's not being mentioned here in some type of jesting, snide, cheering crowd, jeering crowd, cell phone, video crowd, not like that. With a certain decorum that the hukum of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is being manifested. It's a small manifestation of the incredible might and power and azmat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's in the sense they should witness. So it's also the act of witnessing is also part of the deterrent. For the people who are witnessing, it's supposed to move them to the tawbah of that sin, a related sin, other sins. Because they will realize that Allah Ta'ala's punishment does come. And this is just a small manifestation of that. And they should be scared of the real punishment, which is the punishment of Jahannam. That's why. So it's part of the deterrent. Now after you've heard this explanation of just one ayah, you can see how many people in this world, non-Muslim and even Muslim, have twisted this teaching. Both some Muslims have twisted it by jeering and cheering and videotaping and YouTubing, right? And some Muslims have also twisted this, suggesting that this is some barbaric thing that should not be done. Some will even go on TV and say openly, it's not in Qur'an. And they know because the people who are listening have never read and studied Qur'an. And they're counting on your human compassion that you would think, yes, such a thing could never be in Qur'an. That somebody should be lashed and people should witness it. That's what you would have thought, right? And probably 90% of you, before you walked in today, never even knew that Allah Ta'ala said this, and never knew that Allah Ta'ala said it in such a perfect way, forcibly, but also acknowledging the compassion. Means that we didn't even know two ayahs of Qur'an. What, what was the ilm we needed to protect ourselves from all of this misleading propaganda, whether by non-Muslims or whatever, quote-unquote, modernist Muslims? We just needed knowledge of two verses of Qur'an. That's all we needed. That much ilm would have been sufficient to protect us from all of the doubts, the shak, the shuba. But we couldn't even get that knowledge up till now. Allahu Akbar Kamira. And 90% of that, 90%, probably believed everything they heard on that TV or from that whatever official or from that quote-unquote human rights activist. Hmm? And then they got confused about their own deen and they thought maybe my deen is barbaric, maybe my Allah is barbaric. They got embarrassed of their deen. All they needed was two ayahs of Qur'an al-Karim. But to learn it properly, to learn it from the tradition of ilm. If you read this on your own in translation, you wouldn't have been able to figure it out. You would have understood the meaning of the English words you wouldn't have understood the lesson that Allah Ta'ala is trying to convey. So you must take the knowledge of Qur'an from the ulama of Qur'an, who are my teachers in my tradition, that we just share and knuckle to you in the English language. Alright? So quite a few things that we can explain here. Okay, next question is, why is this a deterrent? Allah Ta'ala knows human psychology. Allah Ta'ala knows that when it comes to this sin of lust, the nafs of insan is massive. Massive. And that I think everyone here knows. I don't even need to prove that to you. <laughs> if I need to prove that to you, you are being incredibly dishonest with yourself and you must be living in a hole, in a cave, in a mountain not to see what goes on in this world. This is the most, most overpowering, unlawful feeling that humanity has. So when they have such a high tendency towards this crime, 
such a strong inclination towards this crime, such an uncontrollable urge towards this crime, then obviously Ahkum al-Hakameen is then, because he wants to save us from this crime, it's also his mercy. It's his rahmah that he wants to save us from this crime. It's his rahmah, because if we do this crime, we will be suffering in this world, and we will have to be punished in the akhirah. So because he knows our incredible desire for this crime, he put this strong, strong deterrent there. Who would want to be whipped in public? Hmm? Lashed in public? Allah Akbar. The physical pain and also the embarrassment and also the humiliation of it. So that's why Allah put such a strong punishment to make it a strong deterrent because we have a strong tendency to go towards this crime. Now, I mentioned one hadith to you, this has been transmitted, it's an authentic hadith in the collection of Ibn Majah, Allah Ta'ala, that Sayyidina Abad ibn Samad, where the Allah Ta'ala narrates that Sayyidina Rasulullah said, they enforced the hudud of Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. You may remember we did that last year in Surah Al-Nisa, where Allah Ta'ala mentions hudud, and that's the same passage when he, in Surah Al-Nisa when he talks about the crime of zina and adultery. Enforce the hudud of Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala, near and far, means in all places, within the Muslim world, and then the reproach of anyone will not affect you in matters of Allah subhanahu ta'ala's deen. Let not the reproach of anyone affect you in matters of Allah ta'ala's deen. Reproach means if somebody blames you, somebody censors you, somebody chastises you, somebody mocks you, somebody is sarcastic with you, somebody critiques you. That's maybe the best word. Let not somebody else's critique of your deen stop you specifically Nabi Akareem Sallallahu said from enacting the hudud of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala and this is if you look at in terms of at the individual level family level society level governmental level this is exactly what we've done we let the critique of others prevent us from using implementing the penal code and punishments of our deen let me tell you also just to burst that bubble if you think somehow the criminal justice system in America is some really wonderful, nice human rights thing. Hmm? There's so many people right now who are in jail without even receiving a proper trial, who are in Muslimin and Mu'minin, who are in jail due to military tribunals. They are put in solitary confinement with one hour allowed outside of their cell where they still can't meet anyone. And they've been like that for years in supermax prisons. You call that humane? Hmm? Can you imagine being, and you know the size of that cell, it was like a coffin. Can you imagine being in a coffin-like cell, and you never had a trial even. You never had a proper trial in a civilian court. And you get out for one hour, and you never even killed anyone. The allegation was made that you were part of a larger group conspiring to kill people. And you never even had the right to defend yourself. Because even the supposed evidence against you is also classified. Your own defense lawyer can't see that. Yes? Allah Akbar. So don't live in this mythical world. You need to visit jails in America before you think that somehow, you know, yes, in every system, even, even the parts of their criminal justice system that we would view Islamically as legitimate, it is harsh. You have to realize that you have to wake up to that reality. That any and every criminal justice system is a harsh reality. And you cannot say, I don't want to do something because it's harsh. Jail time is harsh. Even without the solitary, that's harsh. 
Alright? Okay. Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Okay. Now I want to give you some facts. First of all, this crime, which I'll do that part later. There's the individual level of this crime, which at its basic level is a sin against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So mu'mineen need to be saved from sin. Yes, Allah Ta'ala believes that. Why? This is His Rahmah because Allah Ta'ala wants to save Mu'mineen from Jahannam. The only way to save Mu'mineen from Jahannam, Allah Ta'ala wants every Mu'min to go to Jannah. Wallahu yadu ila daris salam. The only way to save them from Jahannam is to save them from sin on this earth. The way to save them from sin on this earth is to put such a strong deterrent that they think twice, thrice, ten times before doing that sin. But Allah Ta'ala also wants to save the family and society from the effects of the sin. Now I want you to look at this West. West or westernized East. Right? That calls this punishment barbarism. So what have they chosen? Actually for them, premarital zina is 100% legal. We're not even talking about an alternative punishment. We're talking about the legalization of what Islam calls a crime. Premarital zina is 100% legal in all of their countries. And in the westernized Muslims, in their mind, they also view it as 100% legal. Right? Postmarital zina, or sometimes they call it extramarital zina, what we call adultery. Even that, many states in the US have declared it to be legal officially. And the other states, de facto it's legal, it's still there somewhere in the books, but no one is ever punished or tried for this crime. So that's also legal. Now what happens when you legalize zina, as opposed to criminalizing it, which the deen of Islam does? When you legalize zina, then you create, first of all, you hurt the family structure. You hurt the concept of nikah, because people are doing zina without needing a nikah. And sometimes people have made that their philosophy of life. They say, we're partners, we're not spouses. We don't need to get married. We're partners. We live in a lifetime of zina. Then you have multiple partners. And I mentioned a few days ago, the New Republic, which you guys may not know, is a very well-respected mainstream magazine in the U.S. Just when I was in the summer, 46.8% of children are illegitimate, born out of wedlock. Now what does that mean? That means that maybe this woman has multiple partners, even maybe she had one partner out of nikah, but when a child is born out of wedlock, there's no concept of family. They're not going to have cousins. They're not going to have judges. Biologically they do, but there's no family. They're not going to know their cousins, their uncles, they don't know their dada, and some of them, if it's the case of multiple partners, and they genuinely don't even know who their father is, they don't even have a father. So the family structure is eroded. Even if they happen to know, the other person doesn't view that human emotion. He said, yeah, that's my, one of the many kids my brother has had with so many women. I'm not going to view myself as an uncle to that child. That's my brother's, you know, let's get the mustiai, right? That's my brother's folly. He's not going to view, even if he knows, he's not going to have the emotional feeling that an uncle has for a nephew. The woman, who's the sister of that woman, it's not going to view herself as a khala, as a maternal aunt, even if she knows, obviously, because the woman you know, who is the mother. Because she says, yeah, that's one of the two, three babies my sister had from two, three different men. It's not going to be the same feeling. Our deen, Nabi Akrim, said, al-khalatu kal-um, that the maternal 
aunt is like a mother. She has the maqam of the mother. She'll get the respect of a mother. And she will have the shafqat of a mother. But that's when these things take place inside nikah. So the mahroom of the family life. Then what you have, and you know, I almost wanted to Google this for you last night, this morning, but in Ramadan I don't, even, I don't want to be doing that. <laughs> but I think you're sufficiently educated enough to trust me on this. So what I'm about to say is not conspiracy theory or Malvi ranting and raving against the West. No. This is a sociological fact that once they allowed zina, once they legalized zina, then lewdness has become so widespread. There's so many ills in that society. Millions, millions of women who are suffering in the illegal sex trafficking trade. Millions more of women suffering but yet in the legalized prostitution trade. Thousands and hundreds of thousands and maybe even millions, but certainly hundreds of thousands of cases of sodomy and child abuse and child pornography and billions of cases of internet pornography because that's also legal for them that's a legal thing, that's not an unlawful thing in their law that's legal billions of hits, that's what I mean billions, not millions not hundreds of millions billions of hits in internet pornography this is what their society is. This is what their society has come to. We have five cars. Actually, uh, you can park in front of any single house on this whole road except one of our neighbors does not wish for you to park in front of his house and you should respect his wish because that is his entitlement, that is his frontage. Now it's our mistake that we've told the boys and the drivers, our own drivers, many times, even to Akmal Sahib, the driver, Akmal Sahib to tell the driver that they're supposed to be on duty and make sure that nobody parks in front of that house. So you may know that simply if you parked at the house right in front, slightly to the left, you have to move your car. If you need to know your color and make and license plate, I've also been given that information. So white Toyota Fielder, LE5062, Santro LEF2411, Blue Civic LRN341, Toyota Belta LFA8895, and just another license plate with no model. Mystery car LCJ LOJ9394. And if, it, if this car happens to belong to any of the women who maybe drove themselves, then we're going to have to ask you to move it as well. Right? So, yes, we were talking to you about the depravity that you fall into when you legalize this. Billions of hits on that. And the sociological and psychological effect of those billion hits, all of their scholars are writing books and articles about this. Why? Because they let the cat out of the bag. It's like Frankenstein. They've created a monster. They allowed this monster and they can't tame it now. They don't know what to do about it. So it's a lot of things. You see, when you allow a man to commit zina, not saying every man who commits zina is going to do this, but you've increased slightly by an increment the chance that he's going to be a child abuser. And then you allow him to do zina again and again and again. 
you ask anyone who's been arrested in the illegal trafficking trade, and you ask anyone who's been arrested in child abuse, on that I can tell you the totality. You ask each and every one of them, did you ever do premarital zina? They'll say, of course we did. You think we made the jump from completely pristine and pure all the way to illegal sex trafficking and dealing in child trade? No, there was a path. So on that, we're not saying everybody who does the zina does that. But I'm saying everybody who does that did zina. So if you even use your akal, what should you do? Stop the zina. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, So that's why saying the person who doesn't impose this penalty would be called, because by not imposing this Islamic shari'i had penalty and punishment, you did not impose the deterrent that was sufficient for this crime, therefore you aided and abetted that crime, you allowed that crime to spread, and if that crime spiraled out into even more twisted, deviant, deviated crimes, you bear some responsibility for that. That's what's happening here. It's not something to take lightly. This is the deen of Allah Taala. Our life has been given to us by Allah Taala only and only to submit ourselves to His deen. We're not here on earth to enjoy. There's another realm which is to enjoy. We're here on earth to submit and to follow and to obey and to worship and to remember. So in terms of the present day, almost all, not everyone, but in terms of the vast majority of present day Muslim government and rulers, they would be guilty of this. They'd be guilty of this. And some of them are guilty of actually even putting this punishment on the books, but then not installing the proper process by which they were supposed to happen. That was a problem that happened in your country. So people could cut an FIR against an innocent woman and she'd be languishing in jail for months even before she had the chance to defend herself. That was another problem that happened in this country. So you have to follow the teachings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala properly from start to finish to be saved from these things. And overall, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also had another reason for this. Is he wanted to teach humanity that you should view and value members of the opposite gender not as physical objects Humanity should be valued for their heart and their ruh, not for their zahir and their jamal. And obviously, that value only takes place inside nikah. Otherwise, in terms of zina, that's a purely physical, lustful act. So it's actually viewed as degrading to humanity. It's viewed as inhumane in our deen of Islam. Because the Islamic concept of humanity is that the human being is primarily a spiritual being, not merely a physical object or plaything. And there's no sense of freedom in that sense. That well, if a person wants to be that way, they should be free to do so. If a woman wants to, that's the philosophy in America why they legalize prostitution. If a woman wants, in certain states, if a woman wants to do that, she should be free to do so. Islam doesn't accept that level of freedom. Allah Ta'ala does not want human beings to legally be given the freedom to do evil. Even to their own selves, even if they don't harm someone else. Now, a couple of other rulings about this uh, concept of zina. So as you would know, right, and I'm going to mention this, although we have given 
you know, at times detailed talks and presentations on this whole concept of Hadood and the Hadood ordinances. There is another, let's say there are four categories of zina. Three categories, right? One is the person who is not married. Second is the person who does zina outside of that marriage, but they are married. And third is the person who is forcibly forced to do zina, what we call rape, zina biljamr, right? First thing is that the ahkam of rape are completely separate. So I may touch upon them separately. But you should know first of all that they are completely separate. Contrary to the propaganda that no, it's treated as one and the same thing. Okay. As far as zina that takes place on behalf of somebody who is not married, the punishment from that is here in Quran al-Karim, that they have to be lashed 100 times. The punishment for a woman who commits zina inside marriage was mentioned, and we did this last year in Surah Nisa, Surah number 4, verse number 15. That the, the story of the punishment of what befalls a married woman begins over there. So let's go back and look at that, and I will actually just read a little bit before that to you as well. Verse 13 says, تِلْكَ هُدُودُ that these are the hudud set by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. These are the limits proscribed and prescribed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And those people who obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when it regard generally, but obviously in this ayah, it's saying that those people who obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as pertain to the hudud, and very important, وَرَسُولَهُ And those people who obey Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's injunctions regarding the hudud يُدْخِلُوا جَنَّاتٍ They will be ent- Allah Ta'ala will admit them and grant them entry into gardens underneath which rivers flow and they will dwell therein forever. So first part of Surah Nisa Surah Fura Ayah 13 establishes that obedience in hudud in matters of prescribed punishments lies to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to Sayyidina Rasulullah so if there's any punishment mentioned for a had offense in an authentic hadith the authority and requirement to follow that hadith is coming from Quran so nobody can raise this question that where is it in Quran and generally and there's something I've not yet to explain to you this year but we did it last year there is nowhere Allah ta'ala has said in the whole Quran that you should only follow what's in Qur'an. And in contrary to that, there are dozens and dozens of places in Qur'an where Allah Ta'ala said you have to follow Allah Ta'ala and the Prophet So this Qur'an-only philosophy is outside and against the deen of Islam. And yes, I'm choosing my words carefully. The Qur'an-only philosophy is outside and against the deen of Islam. Because it's not found in Qur'an. <laughs> it's against Qur'an. It's, dis- it's kufr in this ayah. It's disbelieving and denying this ayah where Allah Ta'ala granted authority to Sayyidina Rasulullah But the important thing, Allah Ta'ala is linking hudud to the Prophet also. Why? Right? Because Allah Ta'ala revealed these hudud laws gradually. And then there were also cases that we're going to discuss today about hudud that took place in the time of Sayyidina Rasulullah and became part of the prophetic legislation of Islamic law. Now, the first thing that we're going to get is over here on Surah Nisan. I'll just move ahead to verse 15. 
And again, we did this last year, but Allah subhanahu says, That in those women who commit the ultimate act of immodesty, from your women, this means from your wives, from those women who were in your wedlock, right? So this is the ayah that's talking about inside wedlock. So here Allah subhanahu says first, فَاسْتَشْهِدُوا عَلَيْهِنَّ أَرْبَعَةً مِّنْكُمْ That you need to establish four witnesses from among you. I'll come to that in a little bit. If they do testify, if they do, فَإِن شَهِدُوا فَأَمْسِكُوهُنَّ فِي الْبُيُوتِ That you have to keep them in their homes, house arrest, حَتَّى يَتَوَفَّاهُنَّ الْمَوْتِ Until they die. So the first punishment that was given in Deen of Islam was that for, so for outside nikah, hundred lashes. That has been standard throughout the entire prophetic period. For those who commit the sin of zina while being married, the first punishment chronologically that is mentioned for them in Quran is put them in jail in their house for their entire life. So you can call it life imprisonment, but it's not in a public jail, it's in their own home. However, then Allah Ta'ala immediately indicates that there will be a second punishment that is going to come chronologically. And that second punishment will then replace the first punishment. This is what in Arabic called Nasikh and Mansukh. And Allah Ta'ala says that, Oh, yaj'alallahu lahunna sabila. Or Allah Ta'ala is going to make another path of punishment. Until that one is revealed, you stick to the first one. That other path of punishment is what has been revealed and that punishment that was revealed was stoning to death. But since I mentioned this four witnesses, let me, since we recited that part of the ayah, so let me uh, explain that first. So the number of four witnesses, why? One reason why is that because you're accusing two people. It takes two to commit this crime. And normally to accuse one person, you need two witnesses. So because you're accusing two people, two each, you need four witnesses. This is one reason. Second thing is that everyone has observed. This is not something that some modern Muslim speaker on TV has discovered. Every classical commentator writes the following. That finding four adult male Muslim upright witnesses to this act is impossible. Because this act does not take place in front of other people. And if they were upright Muslim men, they would have stopped the act from taking place. They wouldn't stand there witnessing it. If they just stand there witnessing it, they're no longer really upright anymore. (laughs) Right? There's only one case where this can actually be fulfilled. And that is a very tragic case. And that happened in this century. Case. Bosnian Muslim woman. Raped gang-raped by Serbian soldiers in front of her father and her three sons. Yes. That has happened. And yes, if Allah Ta'ala's law was to ever be enacted on this earth, those Serbian soldiers would be stoned to death on the testimony of those four men. Alright? Other than that, this case has never happened on earth. There is no single case in the entire history of Islamic law where anyone was punished with the stoning to death penalty because there were four male witnesses present. 
It's not something a modernist needs to tell you. The classical ulama themselves tell you this. Then the question that comes up in your mind, well then why did Allah SWT set such a high evidentiary requirement for this crime that you yourself are saying is impossible or almost near impossible to fulfill on it? Here is it because Allah SWT, number one, that Allah SWT wanted to protect human beings from being falsely accused of this crime. Because if you're innocent of this crime and you've been falsely accused, it destroys you, right? A woman who has been accused of adultery, it's finished. She has no ism left, right? Everyone will say that she has done this. Rumor, gossip, slander, right? Tale-telling. And then also, when the husband hears that the woman has been accused of this, it's coming. Yes, ajeeb, Allahu Akbar kameera. It's coming in Surah Nun. When the husband hears that the wife has been accused of this, it weighs heavily on the husband. If the wife hears that her husband has been accused of this, it weighs heavily on the wife. So it's a very heavy thing to level this accusation. And just the accusation itself, because Allah Ta'ala knows her emotional, just the accusation itself has so many repercussions. So Allah Ta'ala wanted to make sure that no, we cannot let these repercussions take place unless there's such a level of yaqeen, such a level of absolute, unshakable certainty beyond any doubt. Not even what in Western law they say, beyond reasonable doubt. No, in hudud, it has to be beyond any doubt whatsoever. Even unreasonable doubt is something that can drop the hud punishment. It has to be beyond any doubt whatsoever. And in, in, in the language of the jurists, they say, Al-hududu tandaru bishabhat that the Had punishment will drop at the slightest trace of doubt whatsoever. So when is it? How many witnesses are required so that you can say you removed even the slightest trace of doubt? Four. That's my thing. Right? Another reason is that well, the first reason was that to protect the family. The second reason was this, the slightest trace of doubt. And... Uh, the third reason was not just to, I've said all three of them not just the family but also to protect people broadly speaking from rumor mongering and accusing in this society all right. and you're going to see later on in Surah Nur that there's a punishment also for somebody who falsely accuses somebody who is discovered to have been lying that is 80 lashes that is known as Hadde Kazif right. so then how did this happen then? how does it happen? So yes, you have cases in Islamic history where it's happened that people have confessed to this crime. And there are two cases, and inshallah we will look at them, that two sahaba, one male sahaba and one female sahaba, themselves confessed to this time four times. They bore witness against themselves four times, and only then was the punishment carried out. So that is how it has taken place practically. Alright. But... The punishment, either way, what is the punishment for the woman who is inside marriage? So originally it was to imprison her for life. So at the very least, if you want to check the sincerity of a so-called reformist and modernist, it would be okay for whatever reason you don't accept stoning to death, well then you should do this one, because according to you, Allah Ta'ala has still not made that other way. Allah Ta'ala says in Quran that He will make the other way of punishment. But according to you, He hasn't made it yet, Right? And I'm going to show you how that's also a fallacy. 
He hasn't made it yet, so at least do the first one. And they're not ready to do that either. Second thing is, how can you say Allah Ta'ala hasn't made it yet when revelation has ended? <laughs> all scripture is finished, last book is Quran, all prophets are finished, last prophet and Nabi Kareem Sallallahu So there's no way that Allah Ta'ala has yet still to do it. So even that position is a fallacy. But if we allow them that fallacy, they should at least implement the first one, and they're not ready to do that. It shows its insincerity. So they're not, they're not worthy and eligible to speak on Islam. Because they're not qualified, they're not sincere, they're not looking at the text. You can't talk. You cannot be a Supreme Court Justice in America if you don't believe in the Constitution of the United States. If you're not willing to make every argument on the basis of that Constitution. Did you say, they'll say you're ineligible for this job. You're disqualified. You cannot speak on American law if you don't believe that the Constitution has supreme authority. So why is it wrong if ulama say that such people should be disqualified from speaking about Islam when they clearly don't believe that the Quran is the supreme authority? Even if they're the most brilliant lawyer and have the most wonderful law firm. Hmm? It's not on the basis of their akal and erudition that they will be allowed to speak. If there's a brilliant lawyer who says, but I don't accept the Constitution, they won't make him a Supreme Court Justice. They say, you can't speak. It doesn't matter how brilliant he may be. All right. Here, but as I'm telling you that, that that new punishment, that new way of punishment was obviously was made by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Our deen says it must have been made by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And wherever you find that, that Allah ta'ala had told you in verse 13, you're going to accept the hudud from Sayyidina Rasulullah And so we will do that later, that there are very clear sahih hadith in which Sayyidina Rasulullah mentioned the punishment for stoning is, the punishment for adultery, zina, while being married is death by stoning, as opposed to life imprisonment. It got increased. And even in Western criminal law, what's the next step after life imprisonment? The next step is capital punishment, right? So that is the next step. So that even makes sense that if it's going to be the next step could only be capital punishment given that the previous legislation was life imprisonment. Alright? I know this is very intense stuff, right? And I know I can feel what Allah said that there's a compassion and normally most of us don't like to talk about this type of stuff. So those of you who have just come today, you should come other days, because you will see that the Quran is full of the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I in no way want you to only do these few verses of Surah Nur. I want you to do the entire Quran. That's your own folly. If you only come for Surah Nur and you don't come for anything else, I will not be responsible for that, because we have the whole Quran on offer for you. <laughs> right? And that's another problem, people. They have piecemeal knowledge because they put in a piecemeal effort. And they don't understand everything, right? So Allah subhanahu is not just the being who has decreed that this punishment should be punished. He's also Ar-Rahman. He's a whole surah Rahman coming. There's so many more things you need to know about Allah subhanahu So don't try to judge and decide how you want to feel about Allah subhanahu on the basis of one rule. You have to base your feelings on Allah subhanahu on the basis of the whole Quran. I thought that jalta jalta yibat biyakubatana. Right? But now we have to go back to the intense presentation because Allah Ta'ala does intensely. It's not my enjoyment to do this intensely for you, right? But when I feel the tone of Quran is intense, it's my duty to present it to you intensely. And inshallah, if you come, you will see when the tone of Quran is soft, it will be my duty to present it to you softly. That's Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. That's how He is. That's the nature. He is Jalal and Jamal. 
That's the name, that's the way he is in his revelation and his address, his kitab to us. Or not. So just to, to recite to you one of those sahihs, because really even one is sufficient for the process and legislative authority to be established. This is in the Sahih of Bukhari and the Sahih of Muslim and narrated by Sayyidina Umar anhu, who is obviously one of the greatest Sahabah and also the Sahabah who is known for his adl, for his justice and known for his legal acumen and knowledge. So he's not going to make a mistake. Imam Bukhari and Muslim are looking at the other narrators. They've taken care of that. You can look at Sayyidina Umar being the Sahabi narrator. Alright? And what did he say? That in the ba'atha Muhammadan bil haqi sallallahu alayhi wasallam. That indeed Allah Taala sent Sayyidina Rasulullah with haq, making an assertion to that ayah that the Prophet has also been given truth and will legislate that truth. Wa'anzila alayhi kitaba and Allah Taala sent down the book to Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wasallam. mimma anzila Allahu Taala. That from what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed in that book is also Ayatul Rajam. And this is another thing that people love to make this a controversy. That there's a verse of Rajam in Quran. But it's not in Quran. And normally we wouldn't have explained this to you in such an introductory gathering. But because people who don't even have introductory of knowledge love to banter this thing in public discourse. So we thought we'd mention it to you. It's a special case where a verse is Revealed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Quran. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told Sayyidina Rasulullah to remove its recitation. But the law remains. But it's no longer going to be part of recited Quran. Some ulama say even for this reason. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to show, right, that this had punishment is something you really have to have yakin in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala if you're going to do it. But who is going to judge that? Is it going to be a contemporary lawyer or speaker who is going to tell you no, what to do after, what is the value of this hukum of rajam after Allah Ta'ala takes the recitation away? No, it's going to be Sayyidina Rasulullah who tells you what's the value of rajam and that's what Sayyidina Umar is going to continue is that when that verse, even after that verse is recitation is removed, Sayyidina Rasulullah this is what the, the Sayyidina Umar says that Rajam Rasulullah carried out the punishment of Rajam and we meaning we Sahabi Kram and also we Sayyidina Umar we in the Khalifatul Rashid also use this punishment so it means the understanding of the Prophet and the Sahaba of this yes intricately Difficult fact that the recitation of that verse is removed, but when you have something difficult, you go to the master, who is the master of Quran, Nabi Karim sallallahu As his understanding is that the punishment still applies, and he applied it in his lifetime, and all of the Sahaba in the time of Khulafar Rashidun applied it in their lifetime. So can we have a different understanding? And and if we try to, we have to argue on the basis of Quran and Sunnah for that different understanding. Not on the basis of our own rational will or our own personal preference. Right. And then Sayyidina Umar said that this remains, uh, this punishment remains on everyone who commits zina despite being married, whether a man or a woman. Right. So this is that other case, because many of you may not have been here last year when we did Surah Nisa, so I thought I would mention this to you. Okay.
Then, in a, maybe I'll recite one more hadith to you from Sahih Bukhari, again Sayyidina Umar Badantana, that he anticipated this. So, in another hadith, when he was standing on the mimbar, most likely that means in Jummah Salah, he said that indeed Allah SWT sent Sayyidina Rasulullah with the haq, the first words are the same, and revealed the book to him, and the verse of Rajam used to be amongst the verses, and then he says that we recited it, we understood that verse, and we memorized it. And then he says that Sayyidina Rasulullah stoned people, and we also followed his example, and stoned those who were guilty, through a proper process, due process of this crime. And then Sayyidina Umar said, and this word, then he gives his statement, and this is recorded in the Sayyid Bukhari, I fear that after much time elapses, a person will say that Wallahi by Allah SWT, that person will say that by Allah, I do not find the verse of Rajam in the book. And in this way, people will, be, will forsake the command that Allah Ta'ala has enjoined upon them and thereby they will go astray. So then he said that no, Rajab is a reality and it will be enforced on any person who does the sin of zinna while being married when the proper number of witnesses attest to it or when one confesses. Right? Okay. Alright, enough on the punishment. Let's get back to the crime. Alright? The crime of doing zina while married is a very sinister crime. Okay, so now we at least, if we can at least understood the legislation between the harsh punishment of stoning, let's try to look at that, how strong that crime is. This is a very sinister crime, number one. Because this person is a mu'min, right? So they did nikah in the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What does that mean when they did nikah in the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Allah ta'ala said, okay, you take my name, okay, I will make that woman halal for you. And the second that nikah happens, all of the Islamic teachings of how to be with one's spouse falls on both the husband and the wife. Allah ta'ala makes them responsible for being the husband in the way Allah ta'ala wants them to be a husband. Be responsible for being a wife the way Allah ta'ala wants them to be a wife. So when they commit, and what's the greatest violation of the marriage bond is this adultery. That anyone, even in the West, would tell you. The most disloyal thing that a husband can do to a wife or a wife can do to a husband is to commit the ultimate act of adultery. Right? And in fact, probably the second most disloyal is if they do any lesser act, which won't get that punishment, but that would be the second, right? So it's considered the most heinous crime. The most, maybe that's why it was given the most heinous punishment. It's the most heinous crime. And you'd be amazed in a certain section of Pakistan society. Now, the vast majority of you are still too innocent to know this. But there is a small minority of you who has been exposed to it. This is increasingly wide and rampant in the non-practicing elites of this country. So much so that there's what, what we have in America, they call them swingers. You have swingers here. Uh, I've heard from let's say, several other sources, which will be unnamed, (laughs) that this happens in this country, and this is a fad. This is a fad. One of my students once came to me and told him that a woman propositioned him who was married. And then that woman tried to convince him by revealing to him how widespread this practice is. Right? So this is a very grave sin. Very grave sin. 
And some people do it just out of fashion. That's another amazing thing. I mean, if a person does it out of lust, that's also absolutely haram. But some are doing it just as yet another way to mimic and imitate the West. Just for the sake of imitating the West, they do this heinous sin. So this is a very serious problem. Very heinous sin in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alright? And, like we said, maintaining the sanctity of marriage is extremely important to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is the grossest violation of marriage. And Allah Ta'ala wants, even in the marriage, Allah Ta'ala wants, even the husband and wife shouldn't have the slightest argument with another. Let alone that they can commit the most incredible uh, breach of that contract. Alright? I want to mention one hadith to you that you would see, right, that how much this hadith has come true. Also authentic hadith from Ibn Imad narrated by Sayyidina Abdullah bin Umar that he says that Sayyidina Rasulullah once addressed the Muhajirin, which is a special group of Sahabi Kram, and he told them that if five things ever happen, if they start doing the five things, or if ever in the Ummah these five things ever happen, then they would encounter serious repercussions. Number one, Nabi Karim said, this is Textually written in Ibn Majah, which is 1200 years ago, that when zina and immodesty will become widespread, then people will be afflicted with such new diseases that their ancestors had never heard of them. Yes, they actually have a term for this in medicine STD transmitted diseases. Yes, Nabi Akhirisam is saying this. <laughs> Number two. Those people, and the others aren't, but I'll just, since I'm starting the hadith, this is the only one that's relevant to what we're discussing, but you'd be amazed, we're pretty much guilty of all five. Number two, the people, when they cheat in kale, and when they cheat in measurement and weight, kale wasn't, they will be punished with the oppression of tyrannical rulers. Means when they commit small injustices with one another in the market, then Allah Ta'ala will put a ruler on them who does big injustice to them. Number three, those who do not pay their zakah will be deprived of rain. I have seen in my travels in Punjab really dried out riverbeds, complete. You, people are playing in them and there used to be water there. And there's a problem, it's a country that doesn't pay zakah. Number four, those who breach the pledge of Allah subhanahu wa and his Nabi sallam will be vanquished by the enemy and the enemy will take over their wealth. This was colonialism. That when the Muslim lands left the covenant and following the deen of Allah and the sunnah of the Prophet fully, what happened? They were vanquished by the enemy who will usurp, who will take their wealth away. Yes. All the wealth of Muslim states in Africa, Muslim states in Asia, Arab world was all extracted and taken back to Europe. And even now, Aramco, Arabian, American oil company, hmm? And a lot of it is still being extracted just in more sophisticated ways. That they don't need to be colonialist. The economic advantages of colonialism are still there for them. So why do they have to put up with the military expense of it? So they pulled out. Right? And number five, which is the first and fifth relevant to our discussion. Number five, when the leaders of a nation do not pass judgment, legal judgment by the Qur'an al-Kareem and adopt the ways that Allah Ta'ala revealed... Allah Ta'ala will cause such friction between them that will lead to feuds and battles and faction and schism and interfighting all the time. 
trying to kick one another out of government. Right? Whether your judiciary, executive, your whole country, <laughs> it'll lead to infighting and faction. And this Nabiya Kareem said 1400 years ago. And even the atheist would have to acknowledge that you can find it in a manuscript 1200 years ago. How could somebody 1200 years ago predicted this thing about STDs? There's no scientific ability to do that. It's impossible. The scientific knowledge 1200 years ago did not think that such a thing existed. Alright? So there were two aspects of that idea. Now what has happened, I want to take it even further. Because of, not just legally, but even we've become so weak that almost we morally allow. What does it mean? We've become morally desensitized to the sin. Right? Spiritually numb to the sin. Right? The best of us and the worst of us even indulging in that sin. So if the mu'mineen are like that, I mean that's the ultimate sign for you. Forget the statistics I told you about what's happening in the non-Muslim lands. That it's spreading amongst mu'mineen, then that means the whole world is finished. The whole world has ended up on this. So actually Allah Ta'ala sent Qur'an as a hidayah for nas, for humanity, for all living some. And when we go, we're the last drop of humanity because we're the last ummah in terms of spiritual, historical progression of humanity. So when we go, it means humanity is gone. And that's really, really that's the extent to which we have arrived at this moment. Alright? So what does it mean? Very simply, the answer is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did create this desire in insan. And he has legislated nikah. And a person can and should fulfill this aspect of their human self within the bounds of nikah. And that's something that's going to come a little bit later. Now the next thing that's going to come, right, is that, no, look, Allah subhanahu wa wants this sin not to happen. When was the ultimate deterrent after it happened? What is preventive measures to make sure the crime doesn't happen? One preventive measure is nikah. And the second preventive measure is going to be lowering the gaze in hijab. Now you see the rupt between all these themes in Surah Nur. Another big way to prevent people from falling into this trap. Because Allah Ta'ala doesn't want anyone to be lashed. Allah Ta'ala ultimately does not want anyone to be stoned. So He's going to now then, in the following passages, ordain those rules and commands by which people can save themselves from this sin. And we don't even do that. We don't even do that. Alright, so now we are on now Surah Nur verse number 3. Actually, one thing I have to say, although I have to say it because it is, I mean, it is a very commented feature of Quran. Everywhere in Quran, every single place in Quran, when Allah Ta'ala uses the plural, there are a couple of rules. Number one, if Allah Ta'ala simply uses the masculine plural like Al-Mu'mineen, it doesn't say the word Mu'minat also, it's understood that women are included. So Mu'mineen means male and female believers. However, sometimes in Quran, Allah Ta'ala for what we call Ta'qeed and emphasis, and to make sure everybody even more personally realizes their address, Allah Ta'ala separates out both genders and says both words, Right? Al-Qanitin wa Al-Qanitat Right? As-Sadiqin wa As-Sadiqat Zakirin Allaha Kathirin wa Zakirat Right? As-Sadiqu wa As-Sadiqatu The male thief and the female thief Every single place in Quran 
where Allah SWT separated out the two genders, He has always put the masculine first in one single isolated place in Quran. In Surah Nur, verse number 2, Allah Ta'ala put the woman first, Azaniyatu wazani. And this difference is not unintentional, this is not a slip. Again, Allah Ta'ala's ahkam al-hakimin, this is a very, very big ishara. And why? Because what's coming afterwards, in terms of ahkam of hijab, and the lack of hijab and the abandoning of hijab is the greatest thing that leads to zina in this ummah. And hence the female believer who does zina, her mention comes first. Not because the ones who do the act are equally guilty in the eyes of Allah. Right? But, if that woman had not abandoned her hijab, Perhaps that man would have not been involved. And yes, certainly, that man had to lower his gaze, right? And yes, certainly, not lowering the gaze is also one of the biggest reasons on this side. But understand it this way. So you see there's no parody. There's no parody. There is a bit of what we call taqaddam ta'akhar. There is, the egg does come before the chicken. Listen carefully. Yes, certainly, not lowering the gaze is responsible on this side. But how, what did he have to raise his gaze to in the first place? Hmm? If the women had done the hijab, there would have been nothing for him to raise his gaze to in the first place. Doesn't let the man off the hook. The women should not be getting all upset up there. The man is still guilty. But the point is, right, that he could not follow through on that guilty intention unless there was something for him to look at. So if the women had observed proper hijab, they would have saved themselves from that guilt. And even if this wasn't their intention, they would end up saving the man from that guilt. Because even if he tried to raise his gaze, there's nothing to look at. So Allah Ta'ala put first azaniyatu. And so that means, right, this is also rubbed, that abandoning of the complete ahkam of hijab, gender interaction, emotional hijab, physical hijab, that leads to the sin of zina. So it starts with that and then the man can raise the gaze. And yes, when she abandons hijab and he raises the gaze and the end, the worst end that could come to is zina, right? Okay. So that also had to be mentioned over here. So now verse number three. Azani. Now here Allah Ta'ala here in this uh, is going back to like I told you the norm everywhere else the man will be mentioned first. Male form, masculine form be mentioned first. Azani la illa zaniya. So the fornicator will not marry anyone other than a fornicatress, wamushrika or an idolatress, wazaniyatu, and the female committer of zina, she will not marry la yankufha illa zan. Only an, a fornicator should marry her, wamushrik, or a male idol worshipper, wafurimadalika alamu'minin. But all of that is obviously forbidden, prohibited for the mu'mineen, for the believers, all right, to marry uh, idol, idol, idolatry, idol worship. Okay. According to the ulama of tafsir, this ayah it, it was revealed, revealed before the hijra to Medina Manorah. Later on, mu'mineen were permitted to marry other mu'mineen who had committed zina as long as they had done tawbah. 
That's coming also later. I'm going to do, there's another ayah where I can explain that better. Coming in Surah Nur itself. So very important, right? Because many times young men and women hear about this verse. And I don't always initially tell them it doesn't apply because if they come to me, when they hear about this verse, they're coming because it made them feel remorse. And that's a good thing. <laughs> it's making them feel remorse and regret over their sin. And they're getting worried. But now am I ineligible? I did a sin in my life and I made toba, And now, and you know, practically that's very difficult. Then, you know, what are you looking for in a husband? Well, I'm looking for a man who has done zina. What are you looking for in a wife? I'm looking for a woman who has already done zina. It's very impractical to do that, right? So, yes, the feeling of shame you got when you first heard this and you thought, it's a good feeling to have, but no, actually, alhamdulillah, the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that when a person makes tawbah, they can marry a pure person. And when they make tawbah, tell Allah they never have to disclose it to that person, ever. And when they make true tawbah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is haram for anyone else to ever disclose it about him ever. Yes, there's that aspect there as well. These things are happening, to, the punishments come on people who don't make tawbah. They insisted, 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 let themselves go and all abandon. Alright? So, this verse is no longer taken on its face value, but it is there to show, yes, if feeling does remain, that unless the Toba erases the zina aspect from the zani, then yes, it doesn't behoove and befit them to marry anyone other than somebody like themselves. That aspect is there in an emotional sense. All right. Number four. Ayah number four. muhsanat. Okay, and those, as for those who slander uh, chaste women, right, means falsely accuse... Right, and accost in Yermuna literally means to shoot with arrows, so it means to accuse the chaste women, but they fail to produce four witnesses, then you should lash and whip them with eighty strokes. I mentioned this to Bihad Kazaf and Allah Ta'ala says, Wala takbalulahum shahadatan abada and you should never ever accept testimony any testimony from them. So Allah has made a very strong punishment to protect people from the slander that if anybody falsely accuses somebody of zina they will be lashed 80 times and their testimony will never be accepted in any area of Islamic law ever. Contract law, nikah law, they cannot serve as a witness, they cannot sign your nikah nama ever. They're gone, they're ineligible. They've been declared as a liar and guilty of perjury. Right? They have falsely testified and they will be never accepted their testimony. Then Allah Ta'ala says another thing, وَأُولَاكَ هُمُ الْفَاسِقُونَ And then these people are fasik, they're extreme sinners. So the act of falsely accusing someone is viewed, as labeled by Allah Ta'ala as fisk. إِلَّا ذِينَ تَابُوا مِنْ بَعْدِ ذَلَكَ Except for those people who make tawbah afterwards. Now, this is a good way to show you difference of legal opinion. Imam Abu Hanifa, Ta'ala, as would make sense in Arabic grammar, takes the exception to be to what is immediately proceeding to it, which is the norm. So it means that these people will be fasikun, except those who make tawbah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, after the tawbah they won't be fasikun. But we will still never accept their testimony, because that was not where the exception clause applied. And there's a big word there, abada, which means forever. Imam Ash-Shafiri, however, says no, illa refers to everything that came before it, so when they made Tawbah, not only are they no longer Fasikreen anymore, they're also no longer going to be people, who, the, 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 the preclusion, to, the precluding them to testify is also lifted. It means they're no longer people who we won't accept their testimony. 
we will accept their testimony. So this is a small glimpse for you to show how the ijtihad of mujtahideen even on Quran can lead to a slightly different rule, right? According to Imam Shafi, so let's say there's a person who falsely testified and was found to have falsely testified and was lashed 80 times, but then they made true tawbah and everybody, everybody accepts they made true tawbah. However, whatever process they do to ascertain that their tawbah was true. Imam Munifa would say, you still can never testify again. In any court. And Imam Shafi would say, okay, because you made tawbah, you can testify. Alright? And that is part of the Quran. It, it is structured linguistically and grammatically at times to be open to multiple interpretations. Right? So that we may select one, we will not negate the one that we didn't select, they all remain valid. Okay? But the point I wanted to make for you here was that tawbah. So when a person does fisk and they make tawbah for it, what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ غَفُورٌ رَّحِيمٌ That indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all forgiving and all merciful. So that is an ishara here. That even the person who was guilty and now the had punishment will fall on them, they can't get out of that punishment. Just like they can't get out of this if you take Imam Ali's position that their testimony would have accepted. But if they make tawbah, Allah ta'ala will take their name out of the fasikeen means that they will never get any punishment on the Day of Judgment for the sin of adultery or zina. They won't get a single punishment in the fire of Jahannam for the sin of adultery and zina. And that's a very important thing. I won't do that for you today, but you can listen, you know. There's so many ahadith in which Nabiya Karim Sama has mentioned in detail the excruciating punishment and torment that will be afflicted to mu'mineen in Jahannam who were guilty of zina and adultery. So what does it mean you have to make tawbah? If you make tawbah, you will still have to get the punishment in this world, but you will get no punishment on the Day of Judgment and no punishment in Akhirah. And actually that's what Allah Ta'ala wants. He prefers that. That let even the adulterer go to Jannah, get them punished in this world. Now that is why, the thing I told you, I will tell you later, that is why it's happened in Islamic history that they confess. The act of confessing, can you imagine how much, how true your tawbah must be, that you know what's going to happen to you when you confess that you're going to be stoned to death, but you confess nonetheless. Hmm? That is a type of tawbah that is accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That person goes straight into Jannah, even though they committed the act of adultery. So there is a process of atonement and penance in the deen of Islam. There is no sin in this world that is so grievous that a person can't make tawbah for it in this world. Even kufr, shirk, atheism, murder, zina, everything. Right? But there has to be some level of justice on earth. I'll give you another example, which is the other type of zina, rape. Right? Now let's say we could look into the heart of a rapist and see he's done true tawbah. But you're... And let's say you see that, but you would still say he still has to be punished, right? You say it's not just about spirituality. There has to be some element of legality. He still has to be punished. Wouldn't you say that? The victim would certainly say that, right? But me and you certainly say that also. That's what this punishment is. So what does Allah Ta'ala want? Allah Ta'ala wants both things to take place with certainty. The tawbah to be certain so that person's jannah is certain. And the punishment to be certain so this thing can certainly get stamped out on earth. And yes, if we really followed all of this, lowering the gaze, hijab, hudud, zina would be stamped out. People wouldn't do it anymore. And you don't know what type of bliss that would be. We're been corrupted to notice the pleasures and attractions of doing zina, 
we don't we don't realize the nobility and purity and pleasure and bliss and joy and happiness of having a zinner-free life and a zinner-free society, and that's what Allah wants for us. All right. So obviously today I'm going in much more detail than we normally do in a door of seer, but this is one of the the major problems in society, and it's also one of the major misrepresentations and misunderstandings of Islamic law. Alright. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala فَإِنَّ اللَّهُ غَفُورُ الرَّحِيمُ Indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all forgiving, is all merciful. Let me to tell you the story, one of these two stories, one is Sayyidina Ma'iz radiallahu ta'ala anhu. I told you that the Prophet sent two Sahaba confessed, one male and one female. And I wanted to show you the real meaning of this ayah that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is indeed ghafoor and rahim. One was Sayyidina Ma'iz radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And one the woman who remains unnamed, a Sahabiya, a woman from the tribe of Azd or Bani Azd or the tribe of Azd. Right? And they were both married and they both confessed to Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu And yes, they were both uh, afflicted with uh, the punishment of stoning to death was carried out on both of them. Right? And even if you listen to one of those stories, although really we should know both of those stories, you will see Allah Ta'ala's incredible forgiveness and mercy that comes on the people who commit this sin. Right? If I can't read it, then I, I thought I brought it for you. I will. I'll, I cannot recite it to you verbatim because I haven't remembered. But I can recite the story to you in so many words. All right. Uh, two stories. One is Sayyidina Ma'iz radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So he came to Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu and he confessed that he committed this sin. Both of these are mentioned in authentic hadith. Right. And then the Prophet made him confess again. And he confessed again. And then third time the Prophet made him confess again. Then he confessed again. And fourth time the Prophet made him confess again. And by the way, I shall also be clear, this refers to the ultimate act of zina. Not to the precursors. The hud punishment applies for the act itself. Alright? And so the f- fourth time Sayyidina Ma'iz radiallahu ta'ala anhu confessed this sin. Then Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu ordered Sahabi Karam that they should carry out this punishment. Then there's another part of the story, but that's common to both, so I'll tell you the story of the woman also. So once, the story of the female Sahabiya is that a woman, she came from this tribe and she went to Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And she told Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu she went up to him in Masjid Nabwi and said that I'm so-and-so, daughter of so-and-so from tribe such-and-such and I've committed this sin. And Nabiya Kareem was looking down, and that's mentioned, he was looking down. 
And then he asked her that, are you sure? Are you know what you're saying? Are you fully, are you in your senses, right? Do you realize the gravity and enormity of what it is that you are saying and what it is that you are trying to attest to and admit to? And she said, yes. And then when he, when she said she was sure, then to make the Paul Sassam sure, she told the Paul Sassam that I can, I've, I'm pregnant, I've missed, she must have meant that I've missed my cycle and I know that there was only one person who was not my husband and my husband was away right so she expressed that certainty right even though she was offering her verbal testimony but then on top of it she offered her pregnancy as proof of her guilt to show this is a thing of yakin. so Nabiya Kareem Sassam then told her okay you come back after the baby is born right so she came back with a newborn baby and she said, again, she went into Masjid Nabi, went to Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallam, the Ya Rasulullah Sallam, I and so and so, daughter and so and so, from tribe so and so. And don't you remember, I came to you six, nine months, year ago, whenever it was, and you told me, I've come back now, I've delivered the baby. So the baby is now safely born. I present myself for the punishment. I confess. Nabi Kareem Sallam said to her that your baby needs you. You should wet nurse that baby. But nurse said, baby. So she left again. And she came back after two years, which is the period for wet nursing in Ardeen. And she had her baby with her. Same thing. In Masjid Namwe, Ya Rasulullah, I'm so and so, daughter and so and so from tribe such and such. And I came to you and I confessed of that sin. And you told me to go and confess. I'm going to go confess, right? I brought my baby. The time period for wet nursing the baby has passed and she had a piece of bread with her and she fed the baby to Nabi Akram to show Nabi Akram that now he can eat is self-sufficient for me. Now I want to present myself for the punishment. And then Nabi Akram then asked her again. And then she confessed a fourth time and then tears came out of the eyes of Nabi Akram So there's a compassion there. Right? There's a compassion there. And who would feel that compassion more than Rahmatullah Al-Alamin? Hmm? Who is the most softest, kindest, gentle human soul ever to be sent on this earth as a mercy for all of the worlds and universes. So tears came out of his eyes, but he is also bound by this ayah. And he summoned the Sahaba and he told the Sahaba to carry out the punishment. And both after her incident and after the incident of Sayyidina Ma'iz radiallahu ta'ala anhu, Nabiya Kareem Sassam proclaimed that Allah Ta'ala's rahmah and mercy descended on those two in the, each incident so much with such overwhelming mercy that if that mercy had been spread and split into the people of all of the world it would be insufficient to have wiped out all of their sins also. That's how much mercy of Allah Ta'ala they got. It means they got a non-stop ticket to Jannatul Firdaus. <laughs> yes. Allahu Akbar. So this is the way the punishment is carried on on our deen and why the end of that is what? That Allah subhanahu is ghafoor rahim And hence Allah ta'ala ended this passage of Quran when he talked about this with those words. So yes, Allah ta'ala's forgiveness and mercy ultimately prevails. But sometimes a person puts themselves through a process. So why should we put ourselves through a difficult process to get that mercy? When Allah Ta'ala has revealed deen of Islam, that if we just do amal on it, and we observe hijab, and we lower our gaze, and we get married early, and we marry that person we can love, and we can just get Allah Ta'ala's mercy in a much easier way. 
Much easier way. Right? Okay. So now we move off this topic and move to the off the topic of Zina and Had and move to the next thing, which is Surah Nur verses number six to nine. Alright? This is referring to and I you know, may not do it in so much detail as I was originally going to. This is a particular it's slightly related to this topic. Here uh, let me let's first do this. Okay. And those people who accuse their own wives of adultery. But they have no witnesses. So what should they do? This is referring to that incident when the husband or the wife literally walks in on their spouse in the act. So they have yakin. There's no doubt for them, right? But there are no four male witnesses who saw that, right? So the process that just was mentioned, that process cannot be followed. But at the same time, this person, obviously again, Allah Ta'ala understands emotions. This person does not want to remain married anymore to this person. Right? So what's the process that should be followed in this case? So this is what Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala has mentioned. This is known in our deen as Le'an. Alright? Le'an, this is related to the word La'na. And La'na means curse, Mula'na. And they will mutually curse one another. But I will explain to you what that means. There will be a process to determine guilt. Alright? To determine guilt. Because you see, when you go outside of the bedroom, it becomes he said, she said. Right? A wife says, I walked in on my husband. A husband says, I didn't do it. Now the Qazi, the judge, has no way of knowing. Right? And again, because Deen of Islam wants to protect people against false accusations. Right? Because this is one of the worst way of slanders. Right? If you want to hurt somebody's reputation, this is what you do, right? And this day and age, even if it's used as a ploy and trick, you plant someone, and whether that someone even entraps that person and accuses them rightly, or even they don't even entrap, they just accuse that person, right? Any professor who was accused by this, or any female student, even a rumor, the professor's reputation would be finished, right? So Allah wants to protect. And yes, it may even happen that a husband and a wife are so at odds with one another, which is completely haram what I'm about to say to do this, but the husband is so angry with the wife, he wants to slander his wife. He doesn't want to just give her a talaq, okay, you guys can't get along, you hit each other, there's another way out. No, he wants to slander her and incriminate her and not just give a divorce, but say she's guilty of adultery. Or maybe the wife may want to slander the husband because she hates the husband so much. So Allah needs to protect Allah Ta'ala needs to protect. But that first process can't be followed because there are no four witnesses. Right? Okay? So, what is the method that Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala has made in this situation? This situation is called Leon. Very simply, I'll just explain it to you maybe first and then we can translate it. Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala will make, let's say, so it's the man who is accusing the wife. So the first party. Allah Ta'ala says that, okay, the judge, and the Prophet in his time, the judge, Amir, Qazi, should make the man swear an oath four times. And then on the fifth time, he should swear an oath that if I am lying, may Allah Ta'ala's curse come upon me. Now obviously this system of justice is only going to work on mu'mineen who actually believe in Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala and mu'mineen who are terrified of lying in front of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala and mu'mineen who are terrified of invoking Allah Ta'ala's curse upon themselves. And the notion is anybody who is a mu'min wouldn't be able to do that. So that's what the judge is looking. And if the person says, oh, you know, even if they say it four times, but the fifth thing they can't do that, 
So they say, no, no, you have to do it. So much so that he'll be imprisoned. He'll be put in jail. Either say it the fifth time, invoke the curse on yourself, that if I'm lying, may Allah be cursed on me, or then acknowledge that you are lying. You will be put in jail. Okay, so let's say the person after jail says, yes, I acknowledge I was lying. What will happen to him? What will happen to him? 80 lashes? <laughs> because he falsely accused someone? Had they us? Let's say he goes ahead and says it, initially, without even any delay. Now the wife will be called. She'll also have to take an oath four times that she didn't do it, her innocence. And then she'll be told the fifth time that if I'm lying, may Allah Ta'ala's curse fall upon me. And if she hesitates, she'll be put in jail until either she says the fifth time or she realizes that she has to recant. Okay? Alright. If the wife says it also, and the husband says it, wife says the husband says the husband, the wife says they both say it, then no punishment will happen. But then the Qazi will annul the malice. Faskhinika. Will separate them and say, okay, you have separated. But the child, if there, if there is a child that is born, right, the child will not be viewed to be illegitimate. Because again, it's not proven beyond any trace of a doubt whatsoever. In fact, we are in complete doubt because both of them took four qasams and both of them invoked a curse on themselves. So we're actually in complete doubt as to the truth. We're in complete doubt. So the child won't be viewed as what we call walda zina or illegitimate child. And that child will be given to the mother in the care of the mother because the separation has taken place. Alright? So this is that ruling. Uh, and just to share with you, this also happened in time of Sahaba. This also happened in time of Sahaba Ikram And I think after that I will have to pause and actually explain something to you about Sahaba lest you get another possible wrong impression. Alright? Okay. So, and let's just finish translating this. Let me just, now I can translate the verses for you. So this is verses 6 to 10. So those who accuse their wives of committing adultery, and you can even translate that generally as well, because again the masculine plural includes both. So those who accuse their own spouses without any witnesses but themselves, then let the evidence of one of them, let them offer testimony four times, testifying in the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that they are indeed from the truthful, they are telling the truth, so four customs. And with the fifth, on the fifth time, what should they do? They should proclaim and affirm that Allah Ta'ala's curse should come upon them if they are lying. And it would ward off the penalty from her if she testifies four times in the name of Allah that he is in fact lying or in other words that she is truthful right and then the fifth time she should affirm she should accept and attest that if that Allah Ta'ala's anger should come upon her if he is telling the truth right and then what does Allah Ta'ala say in the end what is that note on the end wa rahmatuhu wa anna hakim that if it was not for the fuzzle of Allah subhanahu ta'ala on you, if it was not for Allah's grace upon you, وَرَحْمَتُهُ and Allah Ta'ala's mercy upon you, indeed Allah subhanahu ta'ala's all relenting, all accepting of tawbah, and Allah Ta'ala's hakim, He is the most judicious, the best judge. So again, what you know, and on the note of Allah Ta'ala being, Allah Ta'ala's mercy and Him being tawbah. Alright? So, which sahaba did this? This happened to... Uh, I think all of you understand now the process and the law of Leon, the process of Leon, and the translation of these verses. 
right? So this is mentioned both in the commentaries of Sahih Bukhari by Hafiz ibn Hajar and the commentary of Sahih Muslim by Imam al-Nawwi ta'ala that when this verse uh, actually was the revelation of this verse was prompted by a particular incident that took place. Okay? And that was Sayyidina Hilal ibn Umayyah that he came to Sayyidina Rasulullah he said, it so happened that one day he returned from some journey from far away and when he came home at night he saw that there was another man with his wife and he clearly saw what happened and he didn't do anything there's also something very interesting look at the zarf right? he didn't go and kill the Sahaba were trained you do not take the law into your own hands he did not do anything a, jeep, a man cannot even imagine such a level of sabr that these Sahaba Ikram were sabreen he waited all the way till dawn he didn't even go disturb the Prophet after Fajr Salah he waited he spent I don't know maybe he spent the night in Muslim but you can imagine what an emotional state he spent that night but he waited to go to his Nabi just like we should also wait and not act rashly and we should wait first and refer to the teachings of Nabi Akareem Sallallahu So he went to the Prophet and then he told the Prophet what happened, right? And he narrated the incident. Then Nabi Akareem Sallallahu felt very sad when he heard about the incident. But at the same time, this verse had not been revealed yet, right? And obviously, and Sayyidina Hillel said, I don't have four witnesses. <laughs> He says, how was I supposed to go and grab four men and bring them and say, look at what my wife is doing? He said that to the Prophet Was that what Allah Ta'ala wanted? Was I supposed to do that? How could I do that? I could barely stand to see it myself. Right? And then Sayyidina Hilal ibn Umayr said that I hope, I'm, wallahi, I, by Allah Ta'ala, I'm hopeful that Allah Ta'ala will take me out of this predicament that I find myself in. And then Allah Ta'ala revealed this verse. To Nabi Akareem Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Alright? Uh, and uh, then Sayyidina Hilal ibn Umayyah, then the whole process happened. And Sayyidina Hilal ibn Umayyah, he said all of the oaths and he testified four times. And the fifth time came, he invoked Allah Ta'ala's curse upon him if he was lying. He did the whole process of Liyan. Alright? And then his wife also did all of that. She made the oath four times and uh, then when they came to the fifth time Nabi Akhazim told her to wait and think carefully about what she is about to say that the curse of Allah Ta'ala will fall upon her right if she is not speaking the truth she, it's reported in the Muslim that she hesitated slightly but then she said it and after she said it uh, and she testified the fifth time that if my husband is true then indeed let Allah Ta'ala's anger and curse fall upon me so when that happened, then Sayyidina Rasulullah separated them and ruled that if this woman becomes pregnant and a child is born, that the child goes to the mother. So that's why actually, technically, and not just technically, but in really speaking, we don't know. Because the woman, she also, you have to be fair to that Sahabi also, they both followed the process, they both professed their innocence, they both invoked the curse of Allah Ta'ala to fall upon them if they were guilty. Right? So this is an incident that happened. There's another incident, but we'll leave it at that. Okay? And so that's enough. Uh, very. This happens. Layan is something that happens very rarely today. All right. Verses number 11 onwards, 11 to 20. Here is a major incident. Allahu Akbar. Major incident. And now you see the rub 
Because what did you just have? You had talk of the punishment for zina, right? And then you just had talk of husband and wife, and you've also mentioned haddik as of leon, right? Now what is coming, it is in this context. Let me explain to you say. One is the context in which the verses are revealed. That's what I tell you. I'll tell you that in a moment. Then something which I haven't told you yet in this series this year is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells Nabiya Qurayyam where to put that revelation in Quran. Do you see what I'm saying? The ayat are recited. Then Allah Ta'ala sends revelation on the Prophet that these verses should be put on verse 11 onward of Surah Nur. That's also a part of Allah Ta'ala's revelation. In fact, that's the best example for perhaps for some of you to argue and sense people who say we believe only in what's revealed in Quran. So you just ask them that where are those revelations in Quran? Where There's no part of Quran, there's no verse that says, Oh my beloved messenger, put verses put these words of mine in verse 11 in Surah Nur. Oh my beloved messenger, these verses I revealed to you, put them in the beginning of Surah Fatah. Oh my beloved messenger, the first time I sent revelation, Ikra Bishra, put that all the way in the 30th Jews at the end. There's no Quran verses that say that. But obviously Nabiya Kareem received revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as to where to put these verses. So what is that? That shows the Prophet got revelation outside of Quran. That's called Hadith. Alright? So Allah Ta'ala wanted us to understand the incident of Ufuk, the incident of the slandering of Ummu Mu'mineen, Ummuna wa Ummukum, Sayyidatuna Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. Allah Ta'ala wanted to understand that incident in this context of Surah Nur. So the full clarification would be given. Allah is great. So the full clarification of that would be given. Alright. So first I mention the incident to you and then we'll translate the verses. So what happened? Right? Some of you may be familiar with this but again this we have to do in detail because there is a certain group of people who a certain sectarian group of people who have still to this day in their books and in their Muharram Majalis continue to slander Ummul Mu'mineen Sayyidatina Aisha Radiullah Ta'ala Anha and if some of you ever had the question that just that one act is just that one thing that they slander and curse Ummu Mu'mineen and Aisha and they say she was guilty of this is just that one act enough to put them outside of deen? Well, you can answer that question for yourself when you hear the recited revelation of Qur'an al-Qur'an. How Allah Ta'ala views even just that one act of slander for those who persist in that slander after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has exonerated and absolved and declared in his azali, abadi, pre-eternal, eternal Qur'an the innocence of Ummu Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. It's a choice you make yourself. I'm not going to give any fatwa. You will make that choice yourself. Alright? When you hear the incident and then hear the passages of Qur'an. What is the incident after which? The verses were revealed after the incident. Hence I'm telling you the incident first. Okay? Incident happened that Sayyidina Rasulullah went on a ghazwa, what we call expedition, to the Bani Mustalik tribe. And what he normally did when he would travel, he would draw lots as to which wife would accompany him. When you're at home, if that's another story, I did this for you last year, the whole thing of marrying multiple wives and how that's not recommended but how that's technically allowed. You can listen to that online. Right? But 
when a person is at home, they have to give time to, the, if they have more than one wife, their co-wife equally. But when they travel, one of the sunnahs of Allah to draw lots. When it comes to traveling on Hajj and Umrah, that also has to be distributed equally. But on any journey, one way is to draw lots. So Ummu Mumin Aishran's lot was drawn, and she was chosen to accompany Nabi Yaqim on the travel. When they were returning back on the way to Medina Manawra, there's so imagine a whole caravan of people, camels, at least Umum and Aisha. We don't really know if there were other women there. At least I don't know enough of the details to know. I've never seen any mention of whether there were other women on that journey or not. Allah Allah, right? So they stopped on the way <coughs> back to rest a little bit. When they were resting, Ummu Mu'mineen, as most people do when we stop on the motorway at a rest stop, right? She went to go answer the call of nature. So imagine it, right? Hmm? To relieve herself. And, you know, this is not, uh, even in their own homes actually, they would have to go out into the wilderness for this. And similarly when they were traveling. And because she was a woman, plus a sahabiya, plus a zawjatun nabi sallam, she went quite away deep into the woods before she, or deep, wouldn't be woods, but deep away in the desert or wherever they were, far away from the caravan to before she would slightly expose herself and reveal uh, relieve herself got it okay then so she did that which is the completely natural human thing that uh, every human being needs to do then when she came all the way back from that far place either reached the caravan or reached the borders of the encampment she realized that her necklace was missing and like any other woman one, she's attached to the necklace that her beloved husband Nabi Yukarim Sosam gave her, right? Yes? <laughs> if you had a watch that the Prophet gave you and you left it in Paris tran- airport in transit, you would buy a ticket to go back to Paris just to go to transit to get that watch back, right? And this is the wife of Nabi Yukarim Sosam. So then she walked all the way back there again. Why am I stressing this point to you? It shows you how much time has stopped. You know the Dewu bus says we're going in 15 minutes. Abhi took 15 minutes to go and come back. And then if you go again, you're going to miss the bus. Right? You're going to miss the bus. So she went all the way back to that faraway place where she relieved herself, found the necklace. Then by the time she came all the way back again, caravan is gone. Now then, first question arises, that how, how could they leave her behind? So you don't know the way she traveled, right? She traveled in, what, in modern English and I don't like, there's no other word to tell you this in English, but the anthropologists generally, you know, really have very sickening understandings of this. But it's called a litter, right? Which actually means it's like, uh, there's a camel, and you put like a small little box with extended rods from the camel, so that people can lift the box onto the camel. And I've never seen one of these live, but somehow it must be able to balance on the camel. And then she travels like that. Means she's observing complete Chardavari Parda even on Safar. Her traveling is not, she's not sitting on the camel wearing niqab. No, she's in an enclosure. That's how she would travel. So shows you the level of haya of this woman. <laughs> shows you the level of modesty of this woman. Right? Otherwise, shut on, she could be sitting on the camel and just wear, covering herself fully. No, she would sit inside an enclosed thing with four sides of fabric. And so that enclosure was on the ground and later those sahaba who were in charge said, we just lifted it up. We thought she was inside because she was so light. 
And the historians write that why we see so light and weight because this was one of the early times in Medina Manawara and the Mu'minin were extremely poor and Nabi Akrim, this was those times when Nabi Akrim talks about his faqa and his hunger so obviously his wife was also going without food so she weighed nary a thing so they said that we didn't really realize when she's in it, she's out of it it's always weighs pretty much the same to us and Jaldi May, we were quickly just going so we put it on, we thought she was inside <laughs> we didn't know any better so when she comes to the encampment, everybody's gone right? now, what could she do? Again, she could have given chase, she could have, that could have been an ugly possibility, right? But one thing was that she had, comp- she knew that it's not something, you know, Nabi Yaqrisam will realize that I'm missing, or somebody realize, and they'll send somebody back for me. So in her estimation, which is very reasonable, in fact, I think the absolute right decision, she said, I'll stay there, right? I'll stay there. And so she took her extra shawl, which is an additional shawl she had wrapped on herself, she spread it on the ground and she just sat there. And sure enough, soon enough she lay down, she ended up lying down, waiting for somebody will come back for me, or maybe the vehicle himself will come back to me. Okay. Now there's a Sahaba Sayyidina Safwan Radiallahu and he was appointed as a matter of practice by Nabi Karim Sassam as his rear guard. We would call that in English military terms, the rear guard. Then when the military and the encampment and the caravan moves, you're going to come few hours later and erase the tracks if that's what's needed or pick up anything left behind if that's what's needed or keep watch that there's no enemy pursuing if that. There are many reasons why a person may have a rear guard. So Sayyidina Safwan was a rear guard. Now imagine that he's a lone rear guard. Hmm? Then the Bir Karim Susan has entrusted the entire duty of being rear guard to one Sahaba Ikram. So you're talking about amazing people here, right? Such an amazing Sahaba, and obviously Ummu Mu'mineen Sayyidat and Ashra, such an amazing woman. So when he comes, and because he must be an expert tracker, he's falling right in the tracks of the caravan, so he hits the encampment site, and there he sees, everything is empty, but he sees a woman lying there. In the process of her lying and sleeping, right, her face veil had come off, and he saw her and he recognized her. And then, love people love to talk about this part. He recognized her because just a few years before, she was a young girl who didn't have to observe Parda, and he had seen her like that. Now, if you've seen a 14-year-old girl, or let's say you saw a 10-year-old girl, and then you saw a 14-year-old girl, you'd probably be able to recognize the girl four years later. Right? When he must have made some type of indication to her or she heard that his footsteps, she immediately covered herself. So he knew who she was, right? So what did he do? He did not even utter a single word to her. He walked up to her, he got off his camel, and he walked up to her holding the reins, just standing holding the reins of the camel. And it was understood. She got up and she sat on the camel. And then he walked ahead of that camel, and if need be, maybe he held the reins, or otherwise he walked ahead. And just like that, man, woman, and camel, they weighed their may back into Medina Manawara. You would think that a perfectly happy ending to a slightly scary story that a woman was left alone, but everything is fine. It should have been end of story, right? That's it. There should be nothing else to say, right? But there was a person who was a munafik and who was in fact the leader of the Munafikin. 
So again, the story is nothing more than what I just told you. That's it. Right? Now his name was Abdullah ibn Ubay and he was the Imam of the Munafiqeen and it was the decree of Allah Ta'ala that he should be there and witness when them coming. So he saw, right? And he started spreading a rumor. Right? Now you can even use your akal. If any man would do anything with the wife of another man, do you think then the two of them would just walk in the middle of broad daylight in front of any, everyone around say, into the city of that man? Hmm? No way, right? Here, you don't need to use your akal, and you should not even use your akal when Allah Ta'ala has decreed something so clearly in Quran Al-Karim. So when he saw them, he started spreading this rumor. And you have to remember, he's not alone. There was a whole network of munafiqeen. And if you remember, Sayyidina Rasulullah knew who they were, and he told them to one Sahaba, and that was probably even later after this. Sahaba didn't even know who they were. So as far as they were concerned, people who are spreading this rumor are fellow Sahaba. They don't know that they're munafiqeen. Right? So it means that outwardly, apparently, word is spreading within the community. But in reality, the word is being spread by the munafiqeen. And what is that slander? That slander is the ultimate slander that we had talked about earlier to accuse a woman of adultery. Alright? And which woman? Allah Akbar Kabira. Ummu Mu'mineen Sayyidatina Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. And on what evidence? None. <laughs> on what evidence? Absolutely none whatsoever. Ajeeb? Right? Okay. Now there were three Mu'mineen, three only Mu'mineen, who also, because again remember all these people saying it, they don't know they were Munafiqeen. So they also got swept away in this rumor and these three also started to hold the opinion that something inappropriate happened. Alright? Those three mu'mineen are Sayyidina Mista radiallahu ta'ala anhu Sayyidina Hassan ibn Thabit the wonderful poet radiallahu ta'ala anhu and Sayyidatana Hamna radiallahu ta'ala anha who is the sister of Sayyidatana Zainab bin Tijash who is the wife of another wife Another of the wives in Nabiya Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa Now Umm Muminin Aisha, when she narrated her story herself later, she said, I had no idea when I came. I, didn't, I was not aware. These rumors have been circulating. These rumors are circulating about me. When she came back, she reached, and, and the rumors started spreading, she didn't know about that. But she says she noticed, and this is a very important part because I want to explain this as well. She herself says that she noticed that Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu behavior with me was a bit reserved. His dealings with manner with me was more not as loving and doting and compassionate as he was normally as he normally was. But the Prophet didn't say anything to me and I didn't ask him what is the reason for this slight change in behavior. She said that what happened was one day I fell ill again. I fell ill and again I had to go relieve myself and I walked with the mother of Sayyidina Mista Radiallahu that one of those three believers and uh, walking with someone because when you're ill sometimes you need to walk with someone, right? And she was in the khidmah of Umm Aisha So while they were walking, the, she was an old woman, she slipped, she tripped up on her shawl. And when she tripped, she said, may Mista be cursed, or may Mista be destroyed. That's her own son, right? So Umm Aisha was stunned. She said that, oh mother, I mean, oh old woman, what happened to you and why would you 
say that, curse and wish to be destroyed, he's your own son, and he's a Badri Sahaba. So that was her, she said that. That's the word she said. She's a person, he's from the people of Badr. So then she said that, oh Aisha, don't you know the rumors that are going around that my own son is also taking part of? So she said, no. And this was the first that Umm Mista told Umm Aisha So then Umm said, this made me now more ill. Now I had a spiritual or emotional reason to become sick. And then she said that when I went home and the Nabi then came back and he would ask one by one all of his wives, how are they doing? How is everything? So she said, when the Prophet asked me that, I just asked permission to go to my parents. What you say? But then make him mention again. Huh? But make him alibi kiskiti. Huh? Binti Abi Bakr Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So she went from the home of the greatest Nabi to the home of the greatest Siddiq. Kya safa? So she went to the home of Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And then she asked her mother. Because obviously a woman is going to be too embarrassed to ask her father about such a rumor about her. So she asked her mother about this rumor. And her mother told her that, no, these are just rumors and these are, you know, tales that people tell and these are things that happen. But she says that, no, I spent, my, my mother's attempt to comfort me didn't work. And I spent the entire night crying and weeping and praying to Allah SWT. And I spent one month at my father's house weeping and crying day and night. But she says, I was sure that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and she said about herself, that I was sure that Nabi Allah ta'ala would show the Prophet a dream that I was true. Because she was humility. She never imagined that Allah ta'ala would reveal Quran. So she was making dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala just inspired the Prophet that I am innocent, right? And this is also Allah ta'ala's way that many times he answers our duas in much more incredible ways than we make them. She just wanted that the Prophet receive ilham. But actually Nabi Yukrim received Quranic wahi. So what happened was that about a month later, then these verses were revealed to Sayyidina Rasulullah to which the Nabi Yukrim laughed and he said, Oh Aisha, praise be to Allah Taala, for he has exonerated you, absolved you, he has declared your innocence. So what were those verses? So that's these verses that we have here now in Surah Nur, verses 11 onward. So let's do the translation for you. Indeed that group who put forth a lie concern put forth a lie and slander. Do not think that their slandering is bad for you, right? And I'll explain to you later who that you is. No, indeed it is good and in fact better for you. Every one of that slandering group will get what they have earned get their share of sin from what they have earned. And the one among them who took it upon himself to instigate and took the greatest part and embellished it, he will have a tremendous and terrible punishment. Then verse number 12. That why did not the believing men and women, when they heard that slander, why didn't they simply think the best on their own? And they should have declared, Hadha, that this is hadha ifkum mubin, that this is a clear defamation, this is an obvious lie and fabrication. Verse 13, And then why did they not present four witnesses to testify to it? If they did not produce witnesses, then indeed they are surely liars in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
And then now number 14, again the mercy of Allah, Fadlullahi alaykum wa rahmatuhu. And if it were not for the grace of Allah Ta'ala on you, wa rahmatuhu and Allah Ta'ala's mercy upon you, fid dunya in this world, wal akhirah and in the akhirah, lamassukum fi ma afadtum fihi adabun adim, that indeed a tremendous punishment would have befallen you for your involvement in this matter. Verse 15, that when you note how you accepted and gossiped about the matter with your tongues, even though you had no knowledge of it, and yet you reckon it to be trivial, though it is a matter that was grave and serious in the lahi azim, wa huwa in the lahi azim, that this was a tremendous matter in the estimation of Allah SWT. Number 16, why didn't you say when you heard about it, why didn't you say when you heard this slander and this rumor, Ma yukunu lana anna that it does not befit and behoove us to talk and discuss this bihada, this matter and affair. Subhanaka hadha buhtanun adheem. You should have said, Glory be to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is indeed just a pure and serious and atrocious slander. Then Allah ta'ala says, And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala advises you, يَئِذُكُمُ اللَّهُ Allah SWT gives wa'ad and advice and admonishment you أَنْتَعُودُ that you should ever you should ever advise you against ever repeating I means warns you not to revert to anything like this ever again لِمِثْلِهِ don't ever do anything like this again أَبَدًا forever إِنْ كُنْتُمْ مُؤْمِنِينَ if you wish to ever remain as believers and وَيُبَيِّنُ اللَّهُ لَكُمُ الْآيَاتِ And Allah SWT makes clear to you the verses of His revelation and signs. وَاللَّهُ أَلِيمٌ حَكِيمٌ And Allah SWT is all-knowing, all-wise, omniscient, supremely wise. As far as those people, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يُحِبُّونَ As for those people who love, those people who love, أَن تَشِيءَ الْفَاهِشَةَ To spread that slander and scandal and immodesty should spread amongst those who believe then that anybody who wishes that the slander should spread amongst the believers that they will have an intensely painful punishment fid dunya in this world wal akhirah and the hereafter wallahu ya'lamu wa antum la ta'lamun and allah subhanahu knows you have no knowledge you are not knowing and then again allah ta'ala ends always on the note of his mercy wallahu la fadlullahi alaykum third time this is coming if it was not for the fazl and grace of allah ta'ala on you wa rahmatuhu and his mercy wa anna allah raufur rahim indeed allah subhanahu is most compassionate most merciful Alright, so these verses were revealed, right? And these verses clearly mention, they're ta- Allah Ta'ala is saying it's a buhtan azim a person who continues spreading it will get an adabun azim It's clear words. These verses have no room for multiple interpretation. In this verse, Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala has made it crystal clear that Ummu Mu'mineen Aisha Ta'ala Anha was innocent and this was just a slander. And the group that brought the slander now some details about, let me explain the relationship of some of these particular verses and uh, 
the words, uh, the story that we mentioned to you. Alright? Number one, when Allah Ta'ala said it was indeed a group of you, so that group who brought the slander that was Abdullah ibn Ubaid, the Munafiqeen, and like we told you, three of the Muslimin. But all of those three Muslims then repented. They repented and made tawbah to Allah Subhanahu Taala, and Allah Taala in this passage mentions forgiveness for them. First thing that Allah Taala then—that was the first thing that it was a group. Second thing that Allah Taala said that don't regard it as a misfortune, as something bad. Rather, it is something good that happened. There's khair in it. There's it's better for you that this happened. So the question is, how is it better? That how could there be good in Umm Muminin Sayyidina Aisha rather than getting slandered? What's the khair in it? Why is it better that this happened? So number one, that uh, the, well for the parties to whom it happened to, Sayyidina Aisha and Sayyidina Safwan, they got a tremendous sawab for the suburb that they showed. Tremendous sawab for the suburb that they showed. Incredible darajat for the suburb that they showed. Second, because it declared, this incident served to declare for all of humanity the purity and innocence and sanctity of Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu these verses in Quran establish 100% irrefutably her wondrous, miraculous, immaculate nature. And third, that uh, generally some teachings were imparted and this incident served as a, perfect, a good illustration as to how terrible slander can be and how evil slander can be. And Allah Ta'ala was able to point out at the tremendous punishment that the people of slander will get. So there is, in that sense, in that sense, Allah Ta'ala is saying that there is khair in it. Then Allah Ta'ala, what did He say after that? That everyone will have, right? لِكُلِّ إِمْرِئِنْ مِنْهُمْ مَا مَكْتَسَبَ مِنَ الْإِثَمِ That everyone who has a share in this sin will have what? Will have a tremendous punishment. لَهُ أَذَابٌ أَذِيمٌ will have a terrible punishment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But that's for the greatest one. Everyone who did... So that means even if after this, every person who shares in the sin of slandering Ummul Mu'mineen, Aisha radiallahu whether it's some sect, whether it's some non-Muslim orientalist, everyone will face the recompense of that sin in the Day of Judgment. And Ubay ibn Abdullah ibn, Abdullah ibn Ubay, the leader of the Munafiqeen, he will face the tremendous punishment because he was the one who instigated it. And it also means that anybody who revives it, reinstigates it, anybody else who embellishes it, exaggerates it, inflates it, can fall in the same category of getting a tremendous punishment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then it comes in a date that Sayyidina Rasulullah told Sayyidina Abu Ubaidah Badiyatun Sahaba to gather all the community in the masjid and then Nabi Yaqub after personally reciting them to Umm Aisha and laughing and consoling in her then he came out of the hujra and then he gathered all the community in which all the Sahaba came and all those Munafiqeen disguised the Sahaba came as well and he recited these verses to them and Nabi Yaqub declared the innocence of Umm Mu'mineen Aisha to the entire Ummah. Then he summoned Abdullah ibn Ubay and had him lashed according to the Haddikazaf. And those three Sahaba were also lashed 80 times. Sayyidina Hassan ibn Thabit and Sayyidina Mista and Sayyidina Hamna were also lashed 80 times because they had also participated in that false accusation. Or not. Then. <coughs> 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala now brings about more general lessons from this. That was verse number uh, 12. That when the believing men and women, when they heard it, why didn't they think the best on their own? Why didn't they do husnizam? And they should have said this is a clear fabrication. So this is Allah ta'ala training us that you shouldn't listen to hearsay. You shouldn't give ear, lend ear to rumor. You should immediately condemn it. You should nip it in the bud. You should say right back on the person's place that this is a tremendous lie and fabrication that you were saying. Instead, and, and it means also, it suggests, although not, it's not mentioning sin, but it suggests a slight sinfulness of the guilt of listening to it. Right? Okay. Question that someone may ask. Why did not Sayyidina Rasulullah do that himself? Why didn't he just quell it? Why didn't he just say, you're crazy? Why was he a bit reserved with Ummah Mu'minin Aisha So that has been twisted by one sect and they suggested, no, even Nabiyyah Never could such a thing be true. Actually, Nabiyyah Kareem was using his hikmah. He realized that this is a dastardly plot hatched by these munafikeen that are in our midst. And they want to weaken the iman of the mu'mineen by slandering the ummahat of the mu'mineen. And because Allah Ta'ala had not allowed the Prophet in this matter or in any other matter in his entire lifetime to identify and uproot the munafikeen, and that's why he gave the names that remained secret, Right? So he hadn't been allowed to do that. So he was not allowed by Allah SWT to respond. So now he had to use another type of hikmah. If I cannot respond, what should I do? Because the real response, I can't give it. I'm not allowed to uproot the munafikin. And then, because the munafikin have so skillfully spread this rumor, if I act in defense, then people won't really believe that Ummah Mumin Aisha is innocent. They'll just say, I'm just defending her because she's my wife. I will also wait and let Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala clear the matter. So both Nabi Kareem Sallallahu and Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha left the matter on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then comes the issue of why was he apparently outwardly, um, Aisha said that when he met me with all the wives and he asked him in that daily meeting how are, how are affairs, he was a bit, bit reserved, not his compassionate self. That was because Nabi Kareem Sallallahu again did not want most dastardly effect which didn't happen but what would have been the worst effect that the efforts of the munafikin would have made her fellow wives doubt her her fellow wives doubt her so he was playing it very cool as we would say being very professional about it almost trying to as if, as if ignore it alright not in the sense that these people twist this alright this is why Sayyidina Rasulullah waited in that sense and he said in a hadith later on that was is transmitted by Imam Bukhari he said beware of evil opinions because it is the most false and detrimental of talk beware of spreading beware of su'izan evil opinion su'izan badgumani beware of negative thinking and thinking ill of a person without basis that is the most evil and foul and false of talk and conversation But as far as the believing men and women go, so the point was when I was doing verse 12 that Nabiya Kareem is not being addressed here. That why didn't he say it? There was a reason why he didn't say it. But all the other mu'mineen should have said, 
that this is an obvious lie. So all of the believing men and women, and Allah Ta'ala Himself has not said to the Prophet somebody has said to the believing men and women that that's what they've said. Then as far as them, again Allah Ta'ala reinforces the command that they should have brought four witnesses. And the fact, and Allah Ta'ala showing the people, the fact that they didn't bring four witnesses, all mu'mineen, should have made it clear to you that they're lying. Should have made it clear. Then this verse 14 is referring to those three sahaba ikram. That if it was not for the fuzz of Allah Ta'ala and His mercy, right, then a tremendous punishment would have befallen you, Sayyidina Hassan ibn Thabit and the other two. Right? But Allah Ta'ala has accepted your tawbah. Right? Because they made tawbah in their heart. Plus they got the had punishment. So you see the rabd? That what happens when even sahaba have to go through this process? That you have to get the had punishment. And you have to make true tawbah. So we showed you that in Sayyidina Ma'iz. Who we showed you that in the woman of the clan of Al. We're showing that to you in these three. This is the way of Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. All these themes are interrelated in this surah. But Allah Ta'ala... And then, then in ayah number 15, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions uh, that people... Um, okay, another question people raise is, why didn't Nabi Yaqsa not give the lashes earlier? Because the four witnesses weren't produced, you could immediately give the lashes. Again, Nabi Yaqsa, his hikmah, wasn't because he had any doubt, it was his hikmah that if he inflicted the had punish immediately before Allah Ta'ala declared the innocent woman Aisha then again people would say that the Prophet is just the Munafiqeen would have had something to say he's just trying to suppress the evidence he's trying to quiet things down he's trying to put an end to the case like people talk he's trying to close the case before the truth gets out that's how they would have talked right so he actually left the case open by not inflicting the, the had kazaf because that happens automatically you spread the rumor you don't have four witnesses without any further delay you were eligible for the 80 lashes of slandering somebody's reputation. But Nabi Islam didn't do the punishment deliberately to leave the case open so that Allah Ta'ala would resolve it through wahi as opposed to him resolving it through inflicting the had punishment. So the hikmah of Nabi Kareem Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Alright, now verse number 15. Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala says that note how you accepted it and gossiped about it, right? With your tongues, with your mouth, etc. So here Allah Ta'ala is giving a general ruling that passing on information even, this is another group of people who didn't believe in the slander but they relayed it onward. Right? So Allah Ta'ala is saying that that was also wrong, that's tantamount to participation in the actual slander. So it's wrong for a person. And people do this all the time. This is wrong in our deen. And people come to you Yes? <laughs> so and so said something about you, so I thought I should tell you, but I don't really believe it. Right? That's how they talk, right? That I don't believe it at all, and I told them that it's untrue. So just imagine then, just you should understand the person who's telling you that. Not only are they passing it on to you, they're definitely passing it on to others. And they may be honestly saying they don't believe it to be true. But they're still in committing the sin of passing it on. Why? Because this, also, this creates shuck. This is enough passing it on, putting it out there in the air. That also creates shuck and shubha. Look how much Allah Ta'ala is trying to protect reputation. It's not just about Umm Amin Aishana, it's a general teaching. Look how much honor Allah Ta'ala has for our reputation. How foolish are we that we want to break our own reputation by not lowering the gaze and not observing hijab?
Look at this kind Allah SWT. How many laws and how many commands He has done to preserve our reputation. He doesn't want anyone to even whisper something about mu'mineen. Allahu Akbar Kabira. Izzat, Izzat. Allah Ta'ala wants to give us Izzat. And we have chosen to reject that and adopt the path of Zillat for ourselves. All of these things are interrelated in this surah. So then Allah Ta'ala commanded. What did Allah Ta'ala command in verse 17? Right? And now I'm going to show you. And I'm going to, again, you make the decision, I will do the recitation and translation. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala counsels and advises you that you should never ever repeat something like this even the like of it abadan ever in kuntum mu'mineen if you are mu'mineen so what does that mean that anybody who ever repeats such slanders or something even like it according to Quran you finish the sentence right okay and then Allah SWT said the ayat were clear, right? And that Allah Ta'ala makes that ayat clear to you. Allah Ta'ala is all-knowing. And the people, who are those people, right? Who are going to do this? They love. They love it. Inna ladhina yuhibbuna. They love to spread this. They love for fahisha to spread, for immodesty to spread. So this can mean one thing specific to this ayat. That no, they want to keep spreading it. They want to keep spreading that rumor and slander. So Allah Ta'ala says, and they want to spread that slander amongst the believers they want to tell all the believers they want to make websites against Islam they want to write this on their particular sectarian websites and they want believers to read that stuff and they want to confuse the believers confound the believers and put them in doubt regarding their noble mother so Allah says that they will have an azabun alim fi dunya a terrible punishment Maybe they will be even so misguided as to punish themselves on certain days of the year and draw their own blood in a very punishing, knife-inflicting way. <laughs> they will have a punishment in this world and well, akhira and in the next life for what they did. Okay, now this verse also means a more general thing. It's not just about this incident because remember I told you in this series that every verse has a more umumi mana. What does that mean? That generally anyone who loves that ibadah should be spread. What does that mean now? It means all those newspapers with their Sunday times and their good times. Yes. Who want to show you every slideshow and picture of every fashion show. All of those organizers and hosts, material or otherwise of Lux style awards. Any company who puts up a billboard of a woman who is not properly attired. All of them. And they love it. And you literally when you meet them, you, it's exactly what Allah Ta'ala said. They love it. They joke around. They make the billboard say, That's how they talk, literally. Some of them talk with such cynical sarcasm. They pat themselves on the back for it. Exactly what Allah Ta'ala said. Exactly what Allah Ta'ala said. They love it, you himbuna. They were supposed to be alladhina amanu ashaddu humban lillah. They were supposed to love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But instead they love the ways of immodesty. They love their galas. They love their events. They love their, oh, what is it, catwalks. And they want that stuff to spread. And they do it as much as they can here. They push it too much, get a bit scared. They do it in Dubai. They push the edge there. They come back and they do it again in Karachi. They love it. They love it. They love it. Love it. And they want it to spread. They hear that there was some girl who was modest and she took off her hijab. They love it. They get so happy when the students take off hijab. Yes, they love it. They want to remove every power that put the hijab on them. They love it. 
They love it. They get so happy. They rejoice over it. I remember there was an article in Time magazine a few months after America started bombing Afghanistan. And a woman wrote that the women are still doing parda. <laughs> she, thought that, she thought that the Afghani women were some type of bezherat qom and that's what they wanted to be like and the Taliban had forced this on them. So once you bomb them, they'll all take it off. And she couldn't understand and she was sad and she was frustrated by this. She was frustrated by it. And if yes, they find a girl who is an ex-hijabi, they love it, they will parade her around. They will have her give talks. They want her to write her story. Their websites of ex-Muslims funded by the West write your story. They publish their books. Yes. They love it. So Allah Ta'ala says, لَهُمْ أَذَابٌ أَلِيمٌ فِي الدُّنْيَا وَالْآخِرَةِ They will have a painful punishment and torment in this world and in the next. We don't want them to have that azab. Allah Ta'ala doesn't want them to have We want them to accept hidayah. We want them to change. We want them to believe in Quran. We want them to realize all of the societal ills that I mentioned that comes from celebrating and loving and spreading lewdness and immodesty. That's what I told you earlier. We want them to open their eyes and see the reality. We don't want, we're not gloating. Allah Ta'ala is not gloating. We don't want them to be punished. But we want them to receive that warning also. If the message of love doesn't hit them, sometimes you have to try the message of warning. And yes, some of them the message of warning won't make a dent in them either. Allah Ta'ala tries both ways in Quran. He tries both ways to reach them. Alright. Verses 21 onwards. Here now, another rapt, Allah Ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhaladzina amnulat tatabu khutubat shaitan. That all you believe, do not follow the footsteps of shaitan. So here Allah Ta'ala is also saying that there was another force that was behind this. One of the reasons why people fall into these immodest practices or fall into slander or slandering others or falsely accusing others, right? It's shaitan. Shaitan. In the first instance, Abdullah bin Abay Munafikin was just was a puppet of Shaitan. All the Munafikin were puppets of Shaitan. Any and all other, you know, attempts are obviously gonna be also fueled by Shaitan. So Allah Subhanahu is saying, No, you cannot. This is what Allah Subhanahu Shaitan. And each and every such person who follows in the footsteps and path of Shaitan, what will they do? They will actually command. Literally means they will command immodesty. They will enjoin immodesty while munkar and they will command that which is repudiated in evil. They will actually make people do it. They will command people to do it if they're following the footsteps of shaitan. And you have that as people forcing women to take hijab off. People forcing people to be exposed to music and pictures that they don't want to see. They force it. They enjoin it. They command it on people. That means they're following the footsteps of shaitan. But then again Allah shows His mercy. Fourth time it's coming. Same thing. If it was not for the fuzzle and generosity and grace of Allah Subhanahu mercy. That no single one of you could ever become pure, can ever get your tazkiyah done. Abada ever. So here this is an first of three Sahaba Ikram that even the tawfiq of Tawbah that was given to those Sahaba was a gift from Allah Subhanahu to them that He wanted them to want themselves to be pure and this is a major teaching for all of the deen of Islam not just for the people who are formally 
trying to do their tazkiyah. This is Quran al-Kareem showing that unless Allah Ta'ala wants it, nobody can do tazkiyah. Nobody can purify themselves. Allah. But however indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala purifies whomsoever he wills. Wallahu sami'un alim. And Allah ta'ala is all hearing, all knowing. What does this mean? Let me also clarify misinterpretation that sometimes people make of this ayah. They say that okay, look Allah ta'ala said in Quran that only Allah ta'ala can do your tazkiyah. Therefore you don't need a shaykh of tazkiyah. You don't need ustaz of tazkiyah. You don't need sabab of tazkiyah. Right? Well, same Allah Ta'ala said in Quran that He has made the Quran easy to recite. Do you need an ustaz for tajweed? Do you need somebody to teach you Nuranic Aida? You do, right? You need a sabab. So even when Allah Ta'ala puts an ease in something, you will still need a sabab and a wasila. I'm using it in the linguistic sense. You will need a method and a means to get that ease. Allah Ta'ala has made the Quran easy to recite. But you're not going to be able to easily recite it unless you have a qari and ustaz for that. Unless you study the formal discipline of tajweed. Just like that, yes, Allah Ta'ala, no one can get their tazkiyah unless Allah Ta'ala decrees it. But even that is going to happen through asbab. No one will get ilm unless Allah Ta'ala decrees it. But you're going to have to attend a gathering of knowledge. You'll have to acquire that knowledge. You'll have to make effort for that knowledge. You'll have to strive for that learning. No one will get risk on this earth unless Allah Ta'ala decreed it. But you will have to go out and work and earn a living. So the things that Allah Ta'ala bestows are acquired by us through asbab. Just like that are tazkiyah. That yes, will never happen for a person as Allah Ta'ala wills it for that person. But whomsoever Allah Ta'ala wills it for, for them to be purified of sinful emotions and feelings, will happen through a sabab. And the sabab is called the ustad of tazkiyah, the tariqah of tazkiyah, the shaykh of tazkiyah, the way and the path of tazkiyah. That is our deen. So this ayah is not something against that. This ayah is yet another thing establishing the importance of tazkiyah. Verse number 22, now I can move a bit faster. And the high-ranking and wealthy ones amongst you, those of you who have surplus, extra additional wealth, and you have the capacity and rank, should not take an oath and swear not to give to their relatives and to the poor and to those who have migrated on the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rather they should forgive and they should pardon indeed wallahu ghafoorur rahim Allah ta'ala is all forgiving all merciful what happened here was that that sahaba mista was a relative of Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq and he was poor and Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq was actually supporting him financially and after Sayyidina Abu Bakr found out that he is also contributing and participating in this slanderous opinion that has been spread by the munafiqin about my daughter he made a custom he swore to Allah SWT that I will never financially support him again but then Sayyidina Mista did true tawbah as Allah Ta'ala mentioned about and when a person does tawbah Allah Ta'ala wipes everything away and then Allah Ta'ala even wants Sayyid Abu Bakr that you wipe your oath away and you start supporting him again and so after, and Allah Ta'ala revealed an ayah hmm? Jeev Surah <laughs> Some ayat about the daughter, some ayat about the father, Ajib, <laughs> shows you the son of this family. This is a makbul family and a family that's mentioned in Quran al Karim. Right? So, and Sayyidina Bakrasik, the second Nabi, this ayah was revealed and the Prophet recited it. Then the Sayyidina Bakrasik, he retracted his oath. And according to some narrations, he started even giving double the amount he previously used to give to Sayyidina Mista. This also shows how deen brings about sulah. 
in our age if somebody slandered our daughter, we would be their lifelong enemy no matter what. Allah Ta'ala showing in deen, Sullah, Sullah, make amends. Make amends with one another. Let bygones be bygones. Forgive and forget. So that's what Sayyidina Bakr did, right? So that's what this ayah is about. Verse number 23, those who, you know the, yes, those who slander and falsely accuse of infidelity women, who, <coughs> of believing women, indeed they will be cursed in this world and the hereafter. Okay, so another thing that happens, they will get the lanat of Allah in this world and the hereafter, walahum adabun adim, and they will have a tremendous punishment. So again, anyone who slanders any believing woman, living or past, will get the curse of Allah subhanahu ta'ala. Anyone who curses a believing woman, living or past, will get the curse of Allah subhanahu ta'ala in this world, the curse of Allah subhanahu ta'ala in the akhirah, and a tremendous punishment. And that will be a day, يَوْمَتَّشْهُدُ عَلَيْهِمْ أَلْسِنَتُهُمْ And their own tongues will testify, that will be a day when their own tongues will testify on them. And their hands will testify against them as what they did. The feet will testify against them as where they, where, where they took him to. بِمَا كَانُوا يَعْمَلُونَ About each and every single thing that they did. يَوْمَتَّشْهُدُ عَلَيْهِمْ أَلْسِنَتُهُمْ That is the day that Allah SWT will give them the full compensation, their just due in full. And that is the day that, uh, and, and then they will realize on that day that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is al-haq. Annallahu huwa al-haqqul mubeen. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the real haq and the evident truth. You can also translate as mubeen. Allah is the real haq and the one who manifests the truth on the day of judgment. So Allah is manifested in Quran in this world and will manifest on the day of judgment. The next ayah, and this, I, this was the ayah that I meant to say earlier. This sometimes people think applies to them. Even maybe that one, but this one. Al-Khabithu lil-Khabithin wal-Khabithuna lil-Khabithat wal-Tayyibatu lil-Tayyibin wal-Tayyibuna lil-Tayyibat ula'ika mubarri'una mimma yukulun So again, this is the second incident when Allah Ta'ala is talking about zina. Again, the women come first. Al-Khabithat, right? But then to be fair, again the women come first. At-Tayyibat. So when it's pertaining to this issue of zina or free from zina, that's the one case in Quran where Allah Ta'ala has put the, men, the feminine form first. Right? So what does this mean? Khabithat and Khabithun here means unchaste. Right? The unchaste women will be for the unchaste men. And unchaste men should be for unchaste women. And then what tayyibat, pure women, should be for pure men. And pure men should be for pure women. Alright? <coughs> And these people are free from that which they are being slandered against. They are innocent from that of which they are accused and of what others say. And there will be a tremendous maghfirah for them. And a tremendous risk for them. So this is also the promise and extra reward that Umum in Aisha and Sayyidina Safwan will get. And in any place, in any time, any mu'min who is falsely accused, right, they will get, and they are innocent of that, innocent of what others say about them, they will get a forgiveness, Allah Ta'ala may forgive other sins which they did indeed commit, they will get a makhfra from Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala, and they will get rizki kareem. Alright. The, another rupt of this is Allah Ta'ala is giving an ishara in this verse about khabithun and tayyibun. Allah Ta'ala is reaffirming 
that Ummu Mu'minina Aisha is from the Tayyibat. And this obviously we understand that the most, according to this ayah, what? At-Tayyibatu Tayyibin, the most pure women will go to the most pure men. Who are the most pure men? The Anbiya. They're the most pure men of the history of humanity. So their wives, the Azwaj and Muttaharat, will be of the Tayyibat because Allah Ta'ala has made this rule. Anybody who has a philosophy that know that one of the wives of the Prophet was an unbeliever and that an unpure woman then, because the impurity of kufr, an unpure woman was given to him, they're denying this verse of Qur'an. Because Allah Ta'ala said in Qur'an, that the pure women will be for the pure men. And so the Ummahatul Mu'mineen in this are clearly from the Tayyibat, so they are the most purest of women. And that is our belief that um, Sayyidatana Maryam Radiallahu Sayyidatana Asiyah Radiallahu and the Ummahatul Mu'mineen and Sayyidatana Fatima Radiallahu these are the greatest rank of women. Next after that comes Sahabiyat. These are the greatest rank of women. These are the most Tayyib women. Okay, and they were given to the most, uh, in terms of Umahatu Mu'mineen, they were given to Nabiya Karim Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, who is the most Tayyib man. Now some ulama of this here have mentioned an interesting point uh, before we end this chapter uh, and move to something else altogether. Mufassirin have meant that when Sayyidina Yusuf Salam was slandered and accused, Allah Ta'ala had a young boy proclaim his innocence. And when Sayyidina Isa, when uh, Sayyidina Maryam was falsely, people were looking at her skeptically. Then her own baby, we did this for a few days ago. Again, a baby declared in innocence. But when Ummu Mu'minina Aisha was falsely accused, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself declared her innocence. This shows that she is pure and our mother. Ummu Mu'minin. You should not think that human rights or liberalism with liberalism, let if somebody slandered your real mother, hmm? if somebody cursed your blood mother, if somebody called your blood mother an unbeliever, if somebody accused your blood mother of adultery, would liberalism suggest that you should be tolerant of such hate speech? Hmm? What they themselves in the European Charter of Human Rights called hate speech and acts of vilification? And if you wouldn't tolerate that with your physical mother, you shouldn't tolerate that in your spiritual mother. Not tolerating that doesn't mean you should engage in violence, but you should verbally condemn, verbally condemn. That is what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about any act of violence in anyone. We have no need to be violent in anyone. We have no need to do that. But how can we remain silent? We cannot remain silent if anybody does such a thing. We will condemn such things and any and all acts of slander and hatred that are not acceptable in our deen. Right? Okay. Allah Akbar. Verses 27 to 29. Very simple rules Allah SWT is giving now. Now we're moving to another topic. But again, has erupt that, Oh, you believe, do not enter any home other than your own homes until you have requested permission. Right? And then when you do, you should... Say salam mutasallimu ala ahliha. You said say salam to the people in the house. This is best for you if you want to take heed from the teachings of Quran. So what does this mean? Right? Well Allah subhanahu is showing that look, other people forget about doing zina with somebody else's wife or husband. You should not even be you can't even enter the home. This is a private realm. Their private realm is 
separate and distinct and discreet from your private realm, you cannot even set foot without asking their permission. How could you commit such a gross border violation? You understand? So that's the rub of this. Then the general teaching is that yet you, can't, you have to knock. So this is what Nabi Yusuf taught that the Sahaba Ikram have to knock. Once the Sahaba entered in a hadith in Abu Dawud, this mentioned that once the Sahaba entered the house of the Prophet without knocking, maybe out of his love, his intimacy, right? The Prophet told him, go back out, knock, when you get permission to come in, and when you come in, you should say, As-salamu alaykum. Yeah, tirbiyat and that. Yes. Yes. That's what he told that Sahaba Ikram. Then, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the next ayah, that if you don't find anyone there, notice that there's no response, right? You don't, there may be somebody there, but there's no response to your request of permission, then, فَلَا تَدْخُلُوهَا Don't enter. Right? Don't enter until you were given permission. And if you are told to go away, when قِيلَ لَكُمْ If you are told, leave. Come back later or don't come. Right? فَلْجُوا Go away. Don't keep knocking. Don't keep insisting. Go away. Right? This, there are a lot of adab here that I think are very important and I actually in my own experience even with people people don't realize this adab so I'm going to maybe explain this a little bit alright so Nabi Yaqim said in a hadith in Bukhari that when first of all this is establishing that right of admission and right of refusal is entitled to sahib bayt when he refuses you you should just go you shouldn't be angry maybe he has other things to do Maybe it's not always open 24 hours a day for visitors. So the Qur'an gives permission to refuse the visitor. Yes? And Qur'an says that you should just go and you shouldn't be upset about it. You shouldn't insist and persist or break an entry. Second, as Nabi Yaqim said that when one of you seeks permission thrice, the Siddhith in Bukhari, to enter and receive no reply, he should leave. So this means that you can try up to three times. Let me rephrase that for you. You can leave three missed calls. Not seven. Not twenty. Yes. Some, mashallah, women, they can hit like forty in their missed calls. You can have three missed calls. I'm not saying let it ring once. Let it ring all the way to being a missed call. And I'm not even saying three rings. Three missed calls is, I don't know, probably thirty rings, right? Three missed calls. You can send the same email thrice. And I'm actually enacting some usul for some people. Right? Yes. I don't mean email thrice, I never got a reply. That was a different email. If you send an email, forward it a second time, the same one. Then forward it a third time. By the third time, if you don't get a reply, then you can just assume you won't get a reply to that email. Then you can say he doesn't respond to emails. If you send three different emails, we're still in the ballgame. It's until you send the same one to me thrice that you can say I haven't responded to it. (laughs) All right? And same thing for SMS. Right? So, this is... And once, yes, once it happened that Sayyidina Rasulullah came to the house of Sayyidina Saad, and after knocking thrice, there was no response, so he turned, and he left, he turned walking away. Sayyidina Saad had opened the door, maybe, you know, it took him some time, and he saw his Rasulullah, he ran after him, and he asked him to come back, and he gave him some dates and reasons to eat also. Mentioned hadith. So sometimes, yes, that might happen. But the point is, Nabi Islam showed that he didn't continue knocking and ringing the bell. He did amal on this also. We have amal on this that the Prophet turned away. The next verse is very easy to understand. Let's just go back to that. 
Verse number 29. This is a term in Arabic means that literally there is no harm on you, no blame on you. means, i.e., it's perfectly acceptable. What? That if you enter uninhabited homes, homes that have become deserted, but they have some use and benefit for you. This happened because Sahaba Ikram, when they used to travel on trade, what, there used to be uninhabited settlements on the way that made good camping grounds. It must have been somebody's home at some point, but now they're deserted, abandoned, and the Sahaba is okay, well, there's, nobody lives there, but we can't get permission, so now we'll have to camp out on the open. So the Prophet said, no, that for public places like that, and then in the modern context, that means in a public building. Any place of public access, you don't have to knock three times before you go to the hospital. You can walk right in, right? Whether it's a hospital or any other place that is known, either explicitly told or maruf, is known in custom to have public access. All right. Now we're about to begin that session that perhaps some of you came for that. So this is Allah Ta'ala's will that He's going to make you come to us again. Because this is now beginning the session on lowering the gaze and hijab. Which for some people, that's what they're most famous about, Surah Nur. And if you can just get over that and just simply in one step accept Allah Ta'ala's ahkam, then instead I can give you much more details on Ayatul Nur. <laughs> this is the problem with the audiences of today. Because they cannot just simply accept the Sharia and the commandments of Allah Subhanahu We have to explain so much and teach so much. And then we'll probably just fly through Ayatul Nur. And those people who can just follow that, then they could go deep into the intricate details of the nur of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the nur of Nabuwa, the nur of Iman, the nur of Wansadr, the nur of Quran, which is actually what Surah Nur is actually named for that. Kya <laughs> karay? What can we do? Right? So, verse number 30, the important verse of lowering the case. Right? One thing I wanted to mention about uh, seeking permission to homes, another interesting thing that comes in hadith is uh, Sayyidina Jabra went to the door of the Prophet and the Prophet said, Who is it? Sayyidina Jabra said, Me. And the Prophet got angry and said, What do you mean, me? Yes, as he said, What do you mean, me? And he mocked him and said, Me, me, Ana, Ana. He mocked him like that. This is in Bukhari. So it means that un- unless, you know, really, you know, like his husband and wife, me means they can tell from your voice, you should identify yourself. But the Salihin, because they would never even want to outwardly do something against Hadith. So even if the husband and wife, so the, the husband knows that the wife knows it's me, by saying the word me, but he shouldn't say the word me. Because then it would be mushabiyat to what the Prophet didn't want people to say. So he can say something else like, you know, I don't know, it's your honey, lovey, right? <laughs> and anyway, say some words so she can recognize by the voice, but he shouldn't say the word me, just so that outwardly also he doesn't, actually end up saying that word which Nabi Islam didn't want. Because in all likelihood, Sayyidina Islam did recognize Sayyidina Jabra because he was such a master teacher, he would recognize all of his students probably even just by voice. Right? But he was teaching that this is not the proper response to make. Then the Prophet another hadith from Muta Malik told that even when you come into your own home where your mother is, you should knock and ask permission. And some, you know, atheist types really mock this hadith and say, look, these people are crazy. No, actually, it's very simple. That in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ himself and many Sahaba, and many people today, by the way, but not in present company, live in one-room homes. One room, the whole home is one room. Hujra is the word that is used for it. If you go to Medina Manawara, there's a museum where they have now made on the Sira, they have made a replica to scale of the home of the Nabiya. You will be amazed at how small 
each hujrawah that was allotted to the Ummahat al-Mu'mineen. So if your mother lives there with you, she may also be, you know, maybe changing or something like that. It was a one-room house. That's why the Prophet said this. Not because it's, obviously there's not that, and that's coming, Mahram not Mahram is coming. So this is not something that people should mock about. And yes, today, if anybody, if those communities who Allah Ta'ala has not blessed like He's blessed me and you infinitely, and we remain infinitely ungrateful for that, and the sign we're infinitely ungrateful for that, myself included, is that there's still people living in one-room homes when we're living in 20-room houses, right? We're, we're, we fail to be the sabab. This is a big topic. Our failure to be the sabab of the khair Allah Ta'ala either wants to give us or to give others. This could be a whole series in of itself. But if anybody today is still living in a one-room home, then it would apply to them. Even in their own home, they should knock before coming. Alright? But otherwise, you can walk into your own home, obviously, without having to uh, ask for that permission. Last thing is that if somebody gives you such permission, then you can walk in. So Sayyidina Rasulullah told one of his beloved companions, Sayyidina Abdullah bin Masood this hadith is in Sahih Muslim, that is sufficient permission for you, Abdullah bin Masood, to enter my home if you hear the slightest sound of mine in response. So if you knock, you hear just, I'm, I would just go like this. I may be busy. I just give a slight sound, you can come right in. Right? Uh, and in that event, you may lift the curtain and enter, unless I explicitly forbid. Alright. Verses number 30 onwards. Now we're going to be talking about lowering the gaze, about mahram, non-mahram, about the issue of hijab, about abaya, jilbab, about niqab. Most of the comb upstairs came for all of that, right? So we'll start today, and obviously there's a lot of detail, who you can marry, who you can't marry. Uh, كُلِّ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ يَغُذُّوا مِنْ أَبْصَارِهِمْ وَيَحْفَذُوا فُرُوجَهُمْ ذَلِكَ أَذْكَلَهُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ خَبِيرٌ بِمَا يَسْنَغُونَ وَكُلِّ الْمُؤْمِنَاتِ يَغْذُذْنَ مِنْ أَبْصَارِهِنَّ وَيَحْفَذْنَ فُرُوجَهُنَّ وَلَا يُبْدِينَ زِينَتَهُنَّ إِلَّا مَا ظَهَرَ مِنْهَا وَلْيَذْرِبْنَ بِخُمْرِهِنَّ عَلَى جُيُوبِهِنَّ وَلَا يُبْدِينَ زِينَتَهُنَّ إِلَى Illa li, and then there's a long list of people to whom they can reveal their beauty. So the translation is that Kul, my, say, my, my, all my beloved Messenger, Sallallahu proclaim to the believers that they should lower their gaze. This is the most famous English translation of this, right? Lower their gaze, lower their eyes, right? In guard, and one can translate this in a number of ways, literally it means guard their private parts, but it means guard their chastity, their modesty, their fidelity, their purity. Right? Zalika azka lahum. This is azka, this is more pure, most pure for them. Obviously, our Allah subhanahu wa loves us, and Deen of Islam is perfect. Allah Ta'ala is going to call us to the most and best way. So when Allah... And just imagine, if a person was a mu'min, Akal would say that a person who... Even an atheist would say that somebody who believes in a God, that's how they would talk, somebody who believes in a God, if their God tells them that this is the best thing for you to do, obviously that person would do it. That's even atheist I wrote about our iman. 
This is the husnans and of the atheists about mine, yours, iman. <laughs> that if they believe in a God, surely when their God tells them in the book they believe in to do something, of course I'm sure they would do it. Hum atheist ke husne zan ke barabar bine apne aap ko la sakte. Yes? Allah Akbar. Allah Ta'ala is saying this is the best for you, most noble for you, most pure for you. And we're not able to... We question, question. No, 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 tell me why. And what about in this world? And what about in the way I live? And what about in my lifestyle, in my country, in my place? So many questions we bring. <laughs> so Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala Inna Allah khabirun bima yasnaoon Allah Ta'ala says in Quran that indeed Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala has complete information is always informed is all informed about what they commit yasnaoon ya'maloon yaf'aloon all slightly different nuances in it Yasna, and you have it in English as well so about each and every act that they commit so it means a violation of this command not lowering the gaze is a view that we committed an act. We committed something by not lowering the gaze. And Allah Ta'ala knows each and every one of those acts that we commit. That's what this verse means. You've got to open, unwrap and unpack the power and the meaning in this Quran Al-Kareem. This is what Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala is saying. And then tell the believing women, وَكُلُّ mu'minat, Right? Again, because post-event, and Allah Ta'ala put the women first. Pre-event, Allah Ta'ala going back to standard, addressing men first and women second. And tell the believing women the same thing. that They should lower their gaze. Right? The same thing that they should guard, meaning their modesty and their chastity. Alright. So, let me begin with this part, and then that, that other discussion is a very long discussion. Right? And we didn't even give you a break today. Uh, so let me talk about lowering the gaze. And then tomorrow probably is when we'll have to do hijab. And what does it mean not to reveal your beauty and what part can you not reveal? Uh, so lowering the gaze. Okay. And that answer, one thing I won't do, one question that people like to raise is, which I've already answered for you partly if you were listening, right, that if women cover, if, if women cover their face then there's nothing for the man to lower their gaze to. So given that the man is commanded to lower the gaze, it must mean that the women are revealing their face. That answer I'll have to do tomorrow, because that has to do first, I have to explain to you the concept of hijab, right? Other than that, everything about lowering the gaze, I will try to finish up with you within the next 10 minutes or so, okay? So lowering the gaze is a commandment that has been given by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Qur'an al-Kareem. <coughs> the hadith of Nabi al-Kareem sallallahu in Sahih Bukhari, in which he talks about the zina of the eyes. That even the eyes can commit fornication. How are the eyes going to commit fornication? That is through this gaze. That is why in the most contemporary American slang, they call it eye candy. Yes, that's what they call it. They know also. It's like you think they read hadith. They even accept it as the zina of the eyes. Looking at someone who they call eye candy, that's the way they do zina of the eyes. They acknowledge it. Right? They acknowledge it. Lowering the gaze, number one. So let me start with the men and then second with the women. As Allah Ta'ala did in Quran. Number one, lowering the gaze does mean exactly that physically. It does actually mean to physically lower or avert your gaze. Because in this time of the year, if you were walking in my hometown of New York City, you would not want to lower your gaze. Nay, <laughs> someday. 
Yes. Have you heard of the invention of the miniskirt? That's something also Shaitan invented, right? To complex and to make this to make this amal more complicated. Hmm? Lower the gaze means avert your gaze from noticing the beauty of a woman who is not your wife or your mother, sister, etc. Right? That's what it means. Avert your gaze. Why? So that you don't notice her physical beauty. So let's just stop right there and just even ask a rational question. Is there any benefit for us to know the physical beauty of a woman? No, the answer is no. Even the West has to answer no. Even an atheist has to answer no. There's no actual tangible benefit. They may say, yes, it feels nice to me, I can. That's a different, that's a hedonistic argument, right? That it gives me pleasure. But let's talk about benefit. There is no nafa, there is no benefit, no tangible benefit at all in actually noticing the beauty of another woman. Right? Okay. Second question that the world of rationality looks at what? Benefits and reasons. So let's ask the second question. Is there any reason, legitimate, justifiable, any reason, due to which someone should look at the beauty of another woman? Even that they have to say no. They can give again the hedonistic again. That's not the rest of them. They can say, I enjoy it for my own pleasure. But there's no reason. There's no reason. So actually, Allah subhanahu wa is not telling us to do something that's so irrational. Rationality cannot even put a dent in this hukam. Because there is neither any benefit whatsoever, and there is no reason whatsoever to do that. What's the third question rationality asks? Okay, is there any harm? Yes, this is, I'm operating within the world of rationality first. Answer to that is yes. Even they will have to say yes. Even they will have to say yes. I gave you those statistics. Right? Even they will say yes. So, all of rationality will tell you that when there's no reason to do something, there's no benefit in doing something, and there is yes, potential harm, at least you have to give me that, if you're going to be stubborn and not be willing to accept that there's actual harm. Guaranteed you have to accept the potential harm. Even rationality, that's enough for it. There's no benefit at all, no reason at all, and there's potential harm in doing something. The rational choice would be not to do that something. And on top of that, in any case, Allah subhanahu wa commanded us in Quran. What? To lower the gate, don't notice, don't look at, don't stare, don't take a snapshot of the beauty of, an, of a person of the opposite gender. I can just keep both, do both of them together, right? The woman shouldn't do it and the man shouldn't do it, right? Like I explained to you yesterday or earlier today, I suppose, it must have been that long, even I feel like what I told you in the beginning is yesterday, so then you guys must be dying, right? Because I could do this for hours, I could keep, I, mean, I could keep you going until, <laughs> don't worry, I'll let you go. I'll let you go at your proper time. Uh, but like I said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants, instead there's something else Allah ta'ala wants in this place. That what should you know about the other gender? He doesn't want you to know their zinat, their beauty. If you want to know something about them, know them for their taqwa. Know them for their taqwa. Yes. That's what Allah said, fine. That you can know. That you can know. Know them for their taqwa. Allah has something better in mind for you. A better way to view the opposite gender. A better lens and prism by which to view the opposite gender. Not the physical beauty lens. 
تَتَّقْوَى adab akhlaq lens. Even that is going to be to a certain level. Because now there's the second meaning of lower the gaze. Right? Lower the gaze does also mean avert yourself from emotional attraction. Not just physical attraction. Emotional attraction. It's going to be very difficult right now to explain it between emotional and spiritual. There's a difference. There can be a spiritual feeling. For example, I'm sure all of the believing women love Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq. Right? That's not a physical love. In a sense, it's an emotional love, but what I'm calling it, it's spiritual love. What you may call emotional. It's spiritual. It's not a crush. Right? No girl has a crush on Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq. Right? It's not emotion in that sense. It's a spiritual love. Right? They know him spiritually. Yes? All of us, we love all the sahabiyat. All the men love all the sahabiyat. What does that mean? <laughs> all mu'minin love all the sahabiyat. It's not physical. It's not emotional. Are you romantic? Maybe. Maybe you stand by emotion. It's spiritual. It's spiritual. Right? Just think like that. Right? The, our relationship as men or as women, either way, our relationship with the Sahaba, that's why Allah Ta'ala wants us to interrelate with living mu'minin also. Living mu'min. So that's purely non-physical, non-romantic. It's just spiritual. That Now you understand like that? The same way we feel about Sahaba is the same and only way Allah Ta'ala wants us to feel about those mu'mineen that are our Sahaba. Those with the Sahaba, the Prophet our fellow believers on earth. So avert your gaze emotionally as well because when you fall into emotional attraction and some people talk about this as emotional infidelity. Right? This is a big test from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? This is, everybody falls into this at some point or the other. So to save ourselves from that as well, that's also what it means. Another thing a virtue gaze means. A virtue gaze means try to disconnect your awareness and consciousness from that whole world that is teaching you that beauty is the be-all and end-all of life. Whether that is acting, movies, celebrities, music, singers, fashion, culture, society, every single thing that is out there in the world that is pushing the beauty, is marketing beauty, is surreptitiously actually marketing lust and pushing lust, is trying to put and motivate and instill you for the emotion that Allah doesn't want you to feel for anyone other than your spouse. Disconnect yourself from all of that. So that's metaphorically lower your gaze, right? Don't look at those ads even. Don't look at, I mean, just look out. Okay, look. Now, also understand. What is shaitan going to do? What would you do if you were shaitan? Well, don't answer that, maybe. <laughs> right? <laughs> maybe don't think about that. <laughs> right? What should shaitan do rationally? Shaitan should try to design the system that is the antithesis to Islam, the opposite to Islam. That's what he's going to do. What should kufr look like? Kufr rationally should look like the opposite of Iman. That's what it should look like. It should be opposite. Because kufr itself is opposite to Iman. So that society and culture that they choose for themselves should end up looking opposite and antithetical to the society that the mu'mineen would choose for themselves. And that's exactly what's happened. Problem is that the mu'mineen are also starting to choose the society and the lifestyle that the kufar choose for themselves. You didn't invent this stuff. It's not like you invented MTV and now they say there's MTV America. They invented MTV and then there becomes MTV Pakistan. They made the choices and you're following their choices. Their choices were for a lifestyle based on kufr. 
How can you make the same choice for a lifetime based on Iman? So a virtue gaze from all of that. This is another way for you to understand. Yet another of many answers we've given over the years to what's wrong with music and movies and TV and fashion and this and that. There's just yet another answer to it. All of that stuff has been is a product of a society empty of Iman. Obviously that's not going to work for somebody who wants to become a product of Iman. It's not going to work. It also means avert your gaze from all of that. Also means, you know, and this is why it's linked and coupled in both the verses for the men and women to guarding your modesty. So the last part is self-diagnosis. Anything, any single thing that you as an individual know about yourself that it is threatening my chastity or modesty, even slightly encroaching on my modesty and chastity, I have to avert myself from it, take myself away from it, divert myself from it, lower my gaze from it. There are many practical aspects to this, so for that again, you know, we just have to invite you, to not, I'm going to invite you again, but not for that, that you can listen to on the internet. I've given a talk which people have posted on our website in which we detail point by point, practically speaking, what it means to lower the gaze. Right? Such as that if you, and it answers all those questions that no, no, but I'm in a co-ed work environment or I'm at a co-ed university or I'm sitting on a co-ed airplane and they have co-ed stewardesses. Everything is co-ed in this world. It's not just the university, right? It's not just university. I mean, I'm not trying to the university people off, but I'm trying to say the university shouldn't only bear the blame. Right? Everything is common. I'm a patient in a co-ed hospital. My medical treatment team is co-ed. Everywhere you, everything is co-ed. I walk into a bank, the officers of the bank are all co-ed. Officers of the Islamic bank are all co-ed. <laughs> it doesn't make a difference. Everything is co-ed. Right? So the answer to that question, how to lower your gaze in co-ed society, right? That's a long answer that we've given point by point and that if you go to our website, you can listen to that talk there. Right? Because obviously this is a Dora, right? I have to finish the Quran. Uh, and inshallah ta'ala, then tomorrow we'll resume on the rest of the ayah that I did translate, which was about specifically then the next injunction, which is for women, that they should not reveal their beauty except that which in of itself becomes apparent. And what that means is long discussion, Right? And inshallah we'll have that discussion tomorrow. And then when we're done with that, we'll try to have a nice long discussion about Ayatul Nur. And what does it mean that Allah Ta'ala is Nur? And what is that Nur that He has given us? And how can we get that Nur? All of that and more, inshallah, tomorrow, same time, same place, same person, and hopefully the same of you. Because I really wouldn't want that the only thing you ever saw of all of Quran was just the Hudud punishments. That would be an injustice. I'm trying my very best that that injustice doesn't happen. We need you to be our partners in learning. And I'll tell you honestly, that's a problem a lot of the ulama of the city have. And although on your side, you feel that they haven't failed to provide for you. But sometimes you should look at it from their side and they feel they don't find so willing partners in you, especially in this English educated elite class. Not so many are willing partners to engage in learning of Quran. So in this month of Ramadan, Alhamdulillah, this is the first fast of the month of Ramadan. This is the month that Allah Ta'ala says, Shaykh of Ramadan, Allah unzila fihi al-Qur'an. That this is the month of Ramadan, this is the month in which the Qur'an was revealed. So we can make near the Ya Allah, 
if this was the month in which you reveal Quran to the world, maybe you can make this month the month in which you reveal Quran to my heart, that you reveal Quran to my life. And that's the real need for sitting here. It's not Islamic law class. It's deen. It's Quran al-Kareem. It's about getting the nur of Quran into our heart so that we can become people of nur, so we can get the nur of hidayah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we can get the mercy and love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we can become pleasing to Him and be pleased by Him, we can be lovers of Him and become beloved by Him. But may Allah ta'ala accept that intention of ours and every single time we sit in front of Quran, wa akhirun da'wana, and alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. سبحان ربنا ومحمد اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى ال سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم ربنا ظلمنا انفسنا وان لم تغفر لنا وترحمنا لنكونن من الخاسرين رب اغفر وارحم وانت خير الراحمين يا الله يا رب كريم you are most kind and generous rub you brought us inside this month of ramadan you just like you brought us inside this month of mercy ya allah we ask that you bring us inside the decree of your mercy ya allah we ask that you drown us in your mercy on this month that you sweep us away in your mercy in this month that you wash our sins away in your mercy in this month ya rabbi kareem this is the month in which you revealed quran Ya Allah, we ask that you reveal the Quran into our hearts, Ya Allah. We ask that you remove all of the obstacles outside of us, inside of us, our mental blocks, our stereotypes. Ya Allah, we ask that you remove everything that is coming Quran from entering into our life. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask that you make us alim of Quran, ashik of Quran, hamil of Quran, khadim of Quran, nashir of Quran. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, and each and everything in our deen that the Quran of Kareem has pointed us to. First and foremost, Sayyidina Rasulullah, sallallahu Ya Allah, we ask that in this month of Ramadan, in the barakah of the fast that we keep, in the barakah of the acts of worship that we will offer, that Ya Allah, in this month, you make us His true followers, His loyal followers, His loving followers, His beloved followers, make us in a truest sense from His ummah, make us His ummah to Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, and Ya Allah, we ask that you make all of the fast easy for those who are new to Ramadan, new to their practice, we ask that you accept their fast from them, grant them himma on this deen, grant the istiqamat on this deen, and now each and every one of us who you have guided us this far, that you have accepted us this far, Ya Allah we ask that you continue to shower your mercy upon us, that you continue to guide us, we are ever and always in need of your hidayah, Ya Allah we ask that you take us all the way to the doors of Jannah, we ask that you take us through those gates, Ya Allah we ask that you take us all the way to the gathering of looking upon you and gazing upon you Ya Allah Ya Rabbi Kareem Ya Allah we ask that you accept our niyyah to fast every fast this month of Ramadan to fast every Ramadan that we are alive Ya Allah make it easy for us to pray our salawat Ya Rabbi Kareem those who are new to praying Ya Allah give them a taste of that prayer quickly give them the lutf and lazat early on Ya Allah hook them onto you make them addicted to you make them enamored to you Ya Allah we want to leave all 
all of the addictions of this world. We want to leave all the unlawful passions and pleasures of this world. Ya Allah, we want you to give our heart the passion of deen, the pleasure of deen, the lutf and lazat of deen, and Quran al-Kareem. Ya Alhamar Rahimeen, Ya Rabbi Kareem. And Ya Allah, we make dua for all of our friends and colleagues, our teachers and students, our family. Ya Allah, anyone who, and anyone in this ummah who is distant from you, who is yet to have a soft heart towards your deen. Ya Allah, this is the month of your infinite mercy. Ya Allah, send your hidayah on their heart. Soften their hearts towards the deen. Open their breasts for the understanding of deen. Fill their hearts with hidayah. Ya Allah, we ask that you send your hidayah in such a way that it removes the fitna of atheism. It removes the fitna of agnosticism. It removes the fitna of misguided and misguiding modernism and reformism. And Ya Allah, you put the nur of Quran and sunnah into the hearts of each and every mu'min and mu'mina. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem. Rabbana takabbal minna innaka anta samiyul alim. Watubu alayna innaka anta tawabu rahim. الله تعالى على حبيبه سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين برحمتك يا أرحم الراحمين آمين